Okay. Give honor to God and all saints. Emphasis on targeted individuals, giving God all the praise and the glory, thanking God for his awesomeness, just giving God praise for the new year. We come together to just honor and praise the most high God, thanking God for his sovereignty, thanking God for the land of the living, thanking God for all he's done, all he's going to do, thanking God for every rescue he brought us through. Thanking God for this forum to be able to come and articulate the um, atrocities associated with the targeted individual program and being able to say, despite all, we're standing and we're standing on God's word. Thanking God for the power of prayer, the power of prayer and the privilege of prayer. So we're giving God all the praise, all the glory. We're just thanking God for his awesomeness. Um, let me, let me switch. All right, I'm, I think I got a little too much noise going on. I gotta find a way. Let me see. How do I do this? Uh, hold on, hold on. I gotta keep some of that noise. There's some background noise. But um, tonight, uh, emphasis with oh, somebody's breathing, breathing. You're breathing in the phone. Oh boy, I gotta find a way to do this different. I don't know how to do it. But I'm okay. Tonight, we're focused on prayer, why prayer changes things. That's our subject. We're taking a look at a theological perspective as to why prayer changes things. So um, before we get into that, I'll open up. Amy, go ahead. Um, I want you to pray. Anne, I want you to pray. I think of all, our, uh, all the people that need prayer, um, particularly in this community, I ask for emphasis on the prayer for the dismantling of the um, targeted individual program or eugenics program uh, programs in the name of Jesus. Go ahead, go ladies. I'll let you pray because I know sometimes you, you get a little busy and you know you may have to just mute or whatever. So go ahead. Um, Anne or Amy? I can go next. Go ahead, then. Father God in heaven. Father God in heaven, in Jesus Christ, name of great Father. Thank you so much, Father, for allowing us this opportunity to get together this evening, Father, and pray to you as we sing praises that, Father, you send mercy this down. We, we come together, Father, and we want to thank you so much for allowing us to go on and to do your work, Father. And in your name, Father, we will continue to do your work, Father, and do it as you would have it done, Father. In Jesus' name, Father, forever and ever. Amen. 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 Okay. Amen. Amy, Amy, you want to pray now? Amy? Yes, ma'am. You know what Mary, I must say, after all that I've been doing, I am still honest. I still can drop. And I thank God for that, first of all. I thank God for the vision I still have. Didn't want to be an artist. One day I'm going to go back to art school and I'm going to finish up learning how to draw a full face. Things that I knew that I could have done, that had to be brought out of me. I have an artistic mind. I thank God for that. I thank God for even the pain that I have went through. 
because it just pulls me closer to God. No matter what I've been through, these devils can only do so much. Amen. When we lean on my faith and not by sight, I wouldn't be able to still stand. Many times I be tortured. I don't focus on one day this I don't focus on this will always happen to people and, and as well as me. I I feel in my heart that those who do what they do, that one day gonna come to an end. All good things for others that's causing others to suffer must come to an end. I have been in peace in my mind through my suffering. I've been more focusing on relaxing not changes things. Let's take a look. One of the most wonderful mysteries in the universe is that prayer changes things. God has so arranged his world that we have the ability to make significant choices, some good and some bad, which affect the course of history. One means God has given us to do this is prayer, asking him to act. That is what prayer is about, asking God to act. Because he is all wise and all powerful, knowing the end from the beginning, Isaiah, pursuant to Isaiah 46.10, he's able to weave our requests into his internally good purposes. At this point, our thinking can seriously go astray in one or two directions, one of two directions. The first is to say, if God is all powerful, all knowing, and all good, and if everything is preordained, then he's going to do whatever he wills anyway, and thus our prayers can't have any significant effect. Sure, they may help us psychologically, such that talking to God helps us get things off our chest, that may help us feel better, but prayers, do they count? for much in the grand scheme of things, so why bother? Here, there's an open emphasis on God's absolute sovereignty. The second route, though, different from the first, ends up in the same place by denying the usefulness of prayer. 
Here, the objection, if human beings are free to make up their own minds, then God can't be absolutely sovereign. He must take risks such that human decisions can thwart his purposes. So there are severe limits to what we can ask for without undermining human freedom. If, for example, you've been praying for your sister to become a Christian and God has done everything he can to bring her to him, but somehow she won't surrender to him, why bother, why bother asking God to save her? It's out of order to pressure God to do more than he can do, so just give up on prayer? Hmm. Here the emphasis rests on certain understanding of human freedom. It's called libertarian. Strange logic. Take at face value. Both objections appear to have some force, but only because they employ a strange logic that goes beyond scripture. It's always foolish and dangerous to play up one aspect of what the Bible teaches at the expense of something else it equally affirms. The God of the Bible is presented as the one who rules over all. He is all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful. He isn't surprised by anything we may think or do. On the other hand, scripture also presents human beings as responsible moral agents who make significant choices. Oh, they messed up my thing. Ay, ay, ay. Let's see. Oh, they messed up. Hold on, hold on. I got to find this. I messed up my thing. One of the most. All right, here it is. Let's see. Responsible. Da, da, da. They messed up my. Um... Ay, ay, ay. I was up to choices, but presents he's all knowing. On the other hand, scripture also presents human beings as responsible moral agents who make significant choices, doing what we desire to do, freedom of inclination. God has chosen to relate to us personally without compromising the fact that he is God. That said, scripture describes the sovereign God as repenting or relenting in response to human prayer. Take Exodus 32, for instance. At this point in salvation history, the people of Israel have broken the Ten Commandments by building and worshiping the golden calf. Incense God vows to wipe them out. I have seen these people and they are stiff, naked people. He says to Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation, verses 9 and 10. But Moses steps into the breach and reminds God of his promises, arguing his reputation will be brought into disrepute for saying one thing, I will save the people in doing another, destroying them, appearing to renege on his promises to Abraham. Moses appeals to God as the sovereign king to show mercy, verses 11 and 13. And that's exactly what happens. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Certain means, the theoretical problem raised by a belief in the efficacy of prayer to a sovereign God is acknowledged by C.S. Lewis, who helpfully places it within the wider context of God using certain means to achieve desired ends. Can we believe that God really modifies his action in response to the suggestions of men? For infinite wisdom does not need telling 
what is best and infinite goodness needs no urging to do it. But neither does God need any of those things that are done by finite agents, whether living or inanimate, he could, if he choose, if he chose, repair our bodies miraculously without food or give us food without the aid of farmers, bakers, and butchers, or knowledge without the aid of learned men, or convert the heathen without missionaries. Instead, he allows soils and weather and animals and the muscles and minds and wills of men to cooperate in the ex execution of his will. God said, God said, Paschal instituted prayer in order to lend to his creatures the dignity of casualty. But not only prayer, whenever we act at all, he lends us that dignity. It's not really stranger nor less strange that my prayer should affect the course of events and that my other actions should do so. They have not advised or changed. Oh boy. Oh, and 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 you gotta mute yourself, honey. It sounds like you're snoring. I don't know, and, and I'm taping this. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you, baby, I'm taping this. So that messes up a call if I got snoring. You're snoring in. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Is there any way you can mute? Yeah, I can mute. Thank you, darling. They have not advised or changed God's mind, that is, his overall purpose, but that purpose will be realized in different ways according to the actions, including prayers of his creatures. Our problem is trying to see how prayer works is that we often have a wrong view of God in relation to his world. Often we think of God like Bruce Almighty sitting in a celestial office and feverishly dealing with all the requests that arrive. Miss Green prays her husband's cancer be cured. Mr. Young prays his wife might conquer alcoholism and so on with a million more worthy requests. It seems to be in line with God's will that Mr. Green be healthy and Miss Young to be sober. But what if both get worse? Does this mean that God doesn't answer prayer? The tangled web. All right, hold on. I got too much noise. Too much money. I gotta find another way to do this. I'm gonna mute that. Hold on. Let's do this. I can find another way. All right, I'll go here. Let's unmute this. Okay. Why is this making this noise? This is muted. I don't want that noise. I gotta find a way to get rid of that noise. Oh, no. oh I think I found it. Testing. Testing, testing. Hello? Testing, testing. Testing, testing. Hold on. No, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I'm just trying to figure out how to keep some of this noise down.
hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, you. Okay. All right. Let me try and do it this way. Because I, I just have so much noise coming in. It just messes it messes up the tape recording. So all right. Um I'm almost done. we we were at all right, somebody's got this background noise. It's it's all right, let me turn on how to do this. Okay. All right, there it is. All right, so one of the most wonderful mysteries. Oh, I did that. Okay. One second. It's just Jesus Christ. Right. Okay, give me our problem. All right, our problem in trying to see how prayer works is that we often have a wrong view of God in relation to his world. Often we think of God like Bruce, Bruce Almighty sitting in in a celestial office. I did read that, but I'll go over it again. And feverishly dealing with all the requests that arrive. Miss Green prays her husband's cancer to be cured. Mr. Young prays his wife might conquer alcoholism and so on. With a million more worthy requests, it seems to be in line with God's will that yes, Miss Green's husband will be healthy and Miss Young will be Miss Mrs. Young will be sober. But what if both get worse? Does this mean that God doesn't answer prayer? The tangled web of human living in the fallen world makes things more complex. At times, the good ends God desires arise from certain evils. Again, at times, the good ends God desires arise from certain evils. And I think that applies to the TI situation. God has a good end, but it, it, it the it, it's coming from certain evils. And that, that falls back to me always saying, sometimes a good God has to allow a certain amount of evil for the benefit of humanity. And that means some of us have to suffer. Some have to be even, you know, um, I, well, I can't think, sacrifice. Okay, for this nation to wake up and see how serious Satanism is. This is what this is. I, I believe it's about having ungodly people in leadership positions. That's how Satanists get to play ring around the posy around uh, officials. And until people see the need for godly men and women in governance positions, the nation will suffer. Because what you have is a bunch of Satanists that have targeted our governance structures, meaning our executive and legislative and judicial branch. They have planted demons in there. And they're using dark forces. Now, if you have El Bobo in there, a government official with no spiritual background, he's too busy, you know, making happy out. And the Satanists are doing their rituals. They're meeting early in the morning. They're plotting people and personnel and human resources all throughout the uh, entity. They're removing the big the person at the top and putting one of the demons in. Everything's happening through usurpation. They have Zip Recruiter, 
to plant their demons in every, every, every entity you can imagine, particularly restaurants, to poison people, make them sick, decay their teeth. It's no mystery how these people are doing this. Having a background in spiritual warfare, particularly in leadership positions, is critical, it's crucial. And yes, prayer changes things because God needs that communication and he is the creator. That's like, how do you not communicate with your creator? So back to what I was saying here, it says here, um, let's see, oh boy. The targeted web of humans, let's see, our problem in trying to see how prayer works is that we often have a wrong view of God in relation to this world. Okay, I said that. The tangled web of human beings living in a fallen world makes things more complex. At times, the at times the good ends. At times, the good ends God desires, the good thing God wants. They arise from certain evils. That's right. This program, this is an evil program, the TI program, the targeted individuals. But God could have used it his desire for good ends. Would we be praying here tonight? Would we be praying at six in the morning? Would people be changing their lives? This sick program, when it hits, you'll be wrapped in white from head to toe, from your head to your feet. You'll be doing because the magnitude of insanity and evilness and wickedness in this program you will be looking for a way to be out of this world. To not, I mean, when I say out of this world, I mean to not be a part of the the, wicked, the evilness in this world. So yes, God can use. God has good ends. God desires sometimes arise from certain evils. And sometimes evil is allowed for the benefit of humanity. I mean, in this program, and this is an example. Until I don't know how much further this evil has to go, should is it going to hit the whole earth? But at some point, humanity is going to have to develop a wall of protection against evil, just like biblical days. Just like biblical days, they had they have walls of protection against the enemy. We need walls of protection against Satanists. And Satanists must be prosecuted just like anybody else. And just because we're saying Satanists do it, that that's not excusing it. The reality is Satanists are doing these crimes and not getting prosecuted. There's a problem. So how much of this evil has to continue? It is critical for godly people in leadership positions. Could we have godly people in leadership positions and Christians across the nation uh, uh, injecting uh, Satanists with deadly diseases, uh, inducing cleft lips on babies, inducing babies with rare diseases? Could Christians do that and get away with it? No, they'd be incarcerated, they'd be prosecuted. There's a problem, Satanists are not getting prosecuted. Research money goes to uh, funding Cancer, creating cancer and deadly like HIV and, or, I mean, what, this is our money 
is being used? No. If Christians were doing this, they'd be incarcerated. So Satanists need to be incarcerated. It's a problem. All right, so at one level, let's see, at one level, cancer is an evil, part of the curse on rebellious, on a rebellious world. God sometimes does answer prayers for healing, and in one sense, all healing is divine in that God is working. working. But we also must recognize that since we're mortal, all people die sometime. What's more, other prayers may be offered and answered that can only be answered if there's not healing, like grant, gaining patience through suffering or an increased focus on the world to come. Maybe Mr. Green's son has turned his back on God and through his father's illness, he'll return. So in order to answer one prayer, the return of the son, God doesn't answer the other. Complete healing, God alone knows what is, the, what is best, as Jesus did. Therefore, we're called to pray as Jesus did. As a result of our prayers, some things will happen that wouldn't otherwise. And we're responsible. Uh-oh, I got more. Oh, okay. Hey, Liz. Hey, Liz, you got a little background noise, but okay. Therefore, we're called to pray as Jesus did. As a result of our prayers, some things will happen that wouldn't otherwise. And we're responsible for whether we pray or not, because God is a personal God. He invites us to share in his work and prayer. As Bruce Ware puts it, God has devised prayer. Uh-oh. No, it's a little too much. Can you speak a little louder? It's not coming in loud enough? Is this louder? Well, I'm on the road, and I have you on speaker, and I still can't really hear Really? No, I, I, I Just I a little bit. Okay. All right. I'll, 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 okay. You got a lot of background noise. Bear with me, baby. I got to put it on mute. Yeah, you got a lot of background noise. I'm just going to put it on mute until I finish reading, and I, I'll speak a little louder. We're looking at, as Jesus did, in terms of our subject tonight is why prayer changes things. Basically, uh, the Bible tells us to pray. Um, God, God wants our communication with him and Jesus, and, and we should pray as Jesus did. So this is the last paragraph. Therefore, we're called to pray as Jesus did. As a result of our prayers, some things will happen that wouldn't otherwise. And we're responsible for whether we pray or not, because God is a personal God. He invites us to share in his work through prayer. As Bruce Ware puts it, God has divided prayer as a means of enlisting us as participants in the work he has ordained. Mm. Again, God has devised prayer as a means of enlisting us as participants in the work he has ordained as part of the outworking of his sovereign rulership overall. What does that mean? God needs us to pray because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And in order to get his work done on this earth, we have to pray and get the appropriate 
leadership, guidance, and direction. God has devised prayer as a means of enlisting us as participants in the work he has ordained as part of the outworking of his sovereign rulership overall. The relationship between divine sovereignty and petitionary prayer can be stated by this word, participation. Yes, God is all sovereign, but he needs us to participate. He created us. He didn't create us to go against him. He created us to help put his divine plan in manifestation. God has the power and wisdom to use our prayers as he sees fit and to do what he could never imagine. If he weren't all powerful, there'd be little point in praying. If he weren't all wise, it'd be dangerous to pray. After all, who'd want to ask an all powerful but foolish person to do anything? But God is both perfectly wise and infinitely powerful, which is why you and I, we can pray with confidence. We know that God is perfectly wise and infinitely powerful. Let us continue to pray. Prayer changes things. In Matthew 15, 27, it says, she was quick. You're right, master, but beggar dogs do get scraps from the master's table. Jesus gave in. Oh, woman, your faith is something else. What you want is what you get. Right then, her daughter became well. The above verse shows that the future is not fixed in stone. Prayer makes all things possible. In Jesus' discussion with the Canaanite woman, she persistently pleads and Jesus gives in. Prayer can and does change things. If not your circumstances, prayer changes your attitude. Prayer changes us. We should look at praying. Dear Lord, I believe in the power of prayer. I have no doubt that you hear me. I ask you, God, to give us the patience and the endurance to work in accordance with your will for the dismantling of the targeted individual program, for the tearing up, ripping down of all eugenics programs. I bind and rebuke everything associated with scientific obstructions. I bind and rebuke induced poverty organized stalking, the sick, directed energy torturing. I, just, I, re, I come against, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the secrecy curse that would disable public protection offices from helping people. And I thank you, God, that at the end of the day, each and every targeted individual that made it through this horrific program can stand up and say, if it was not for God's grace and mercy, where would I be? God, I thank you. I thank you for a roof over my head. I thank you, God, for a roof over all of our heads when we had not a penny coming in. I thank you, God, that this program can be used to show people that God is a healer, God is a counselor, a lawyer, a doctor, a provider, 
God's favor means more than education. It means more than every position. It means more than every plot and plan of the enemy. God's sovereign power, I thank you and I praise you for it, God. I thank you, God, for coverage for all my life. For watching over, even when we were not here, I thank you, God. And God, I pray the targeted individuals will recognize the necessity and the profoundness of prayer, particularly for our bloodlines, for our children and our children's children. Because we may not, they may not always walk, just like we didn't walk all the time accordingly. But if we have somebody praying, that devil can't get in the way. He can't have that person. So I plead the blood of Jesus on my entire bloodline. I plead the blood of Jesus on all praying, targeted individuals' bloodline, our children, nieces, nephews, and our children's children, that they'll be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, that no targeted individual program will take them out, that no targeted individual program will induce them into poverty, will induce them into suicide, that the blood of Jesus will cover them, that this program will be used to develop and create and advance men and women of God, particularly the younger generation. God be with them. God, I give you the praise. God, I give you the glory. And I thank you for the privilege of prayer. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to talk to you. I thank you, God, for all you've done, all you're going to do. I thank you, God, for the gift of longevity you bestowed upon my mom. I thank you, God, for the gift of longevity you bestowed upon many of our uh, targeted individual people covered by the blood. God, I give you the praise. I give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now I also have a video that I do want to put on my tape. So I'm going to, but I'm going to open up. I want my sister Elizabeth, before I go into the tape, I'm going to have Elizabeth do a little prayer. Go ahead, Liz. I want you to pray a little bit. We'll close out. Are you there? Elizabeth? Mm, okay. I know, Amy, I did promise um, that I would play this tape. Uh, it's a it's a tape. It uh, should help um, explain uh, this uh, targeted individual program. Uh, it's not uh, you know focus on uh, the you know the biblical teaching, but it, I mean part of our our agenda is to expose this program. So if it's not you know just because this man's not praying, um, I'm not going to leave it out. You want to pray? Elizabeth, baby? Are you guys go ahead? Because um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the road on the freeway. Okay, I, I just want to listen in. Okay. All right, no problem. Um, I'm, I'm finishing up on that. That prayer changes things, but I want to, you know, keep everyone encouraged to continue to pray and feel sufficient in God's hand. 
know that you know God God has all power. You know, and he can change everything. Um, before I go into that, I just feel a need to go into one of these other books I have here. 365 things God wants you to know. All right. Uh, we can praise God for his love. As God's children, we should let God know how thankful we are to him for his love. To get there, we can ask ourselves, what might my life look like right now if God's love had not found me? Then with thankful hearts, we can praise our Father in heaven, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, to him the glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelations 1, 5, 6. God wants us to know that we can praise him freely and openly for his love for us. God wants us to know that obedience demonstrates love for God. Obedience demonstrates love for God. Let's take a look at that. Obedience, obedience demonstrates love for God. Actions speak louder than words, right? It's not that words aren't important, of course. Many of us need to hear the loving words along with the actions. But it's our actions that ultimately prove our love for God. Our actions prove our love for God. They who... Have my commandments and keep them, said Jesus, are those who love me, John 14, 21. So what are our actions saying about our love for God? Each act of obedience is a I love you that makes our words of love and devotion ring, ring true in God's ear. God sustains the earth. Let's see. The Lord God is the creator of all good things, and he has assigned us stewardship, responsibilities on earth to care for its creatures and manage its resources. But God himself sustains the earth's existence and the life of each plant and animal. As grave concerns over the earth's future swirl around us, we can find peace of mind in God's promise to Noah after the great flood. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, Genesis 8.22. If we seek to be good stewards here, we can trust God with our future. Mm. God knows all the mysteries of nature. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? <clears throat> God asks, Job, what is the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Job 38, 22. We stand mutely with Job, not able to fathom the vast knowledge and wisdom of God. And so if he knows the mysteries of nature, he certainly knows me through and through. <clears throat> God provides 
for all the creatures he has made. God has been providing for his creation since he first spoke it into existence and fashioned humankind from the dust. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. The Psalms is said to God, you open your hand, satisfying the desire of every living thing. Psalms 145, 15, 16. For millennia, yearly harvests have brought sustenance from his hand. It's something that reveals God's faithful love. He feeds us when we think of him and thank him, and even when we don't. God directs time, seasons, and events. For everything, there is a season and a time. For every matter under heaven, Ecclesiastes 3.1, that God sees and he is able to orchestrate the times and seasons of nature as well as the events of our lives. He reminds us that he is both omniscient or knowing and omnipotent or powerful. You can entrust <clears throat> the times and seasons of your life to God. People sometimes stress out if life doesn't go as they hoped or planned. Yeah, well, that's a that's a T.I. song. <laughs> Again, people sometimes stress out if life doesn't go as they hoped or planned. For example, they may think they should be married by a certain age or have a certain amount of money in the bank or be retired by a certain time in life. That our goals and agendas often go unmet and underscores the fact that much in life is beyond our control, which we just didn't know that. That's why the psalmist is declared, I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hand, Psalms 31, 14 to 15. See, we're just products of what we've been taught. We've been taught that we can plan out our life. You can do this, go to school, get a skill, do this, work, make money, and you're just going to have this life. And that's just not life. That's just not life. And life, you know, uh, our life is... We must put our trust in God. We can't put it in anything else. And this program teaches that. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Psalms is declared, I will trust you, Lord. My times are in your hand. Okay. <clears throat> let's look. Um, let's take a look. Prayers from an upright heart, please God. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 15, eight. Just as we are thrilled with the smallest act of tenderness from our loved ones, so God loves even our quietest acts of trust, our prayers. God sees past what we bring in our hands to the contents of our heart. He cherishes the petitions, the requests, and praises of his beloved children, delighting in them at all times. God delights in showing mercy. God's mercy surpasses even his righteous anger. 
who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression, Acts Micah. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing mercy, clemency, Micah 7.18. In fact, the moment we sincerely ask his forgiveness, his mercy is poised to pardon us and set us on the right path again. Even more amazing is that God extends this undeserved kindness to us, not with irritation, but with delight. Mm. We have to remember that God made the heaven and the earth. He is all powerful. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, Exodus 20, 11. For those who believe God is the creator, there is great comfort in knowing that such a powerful and creative God also cares deeply for what he has made. As you remember your loving creator today, delight in this simple benediction. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth, Psalms 115.15. Remember that God presides over heaven and earth. There's nothing that escapes God's notice. Everything that transpires in heaven and on earth is in his view. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above the earth below Joshua 2.11. While God permits people to choose their path in life, no human plan will ever prevail against God's purposes. Wow. When you were T.I., you got to repeat this again. While God permits people to choose their path in life, understand that no human plan will ever prevail against God's purposes. He is God and he presides with wisdom over all things. God's dwelling is in heaven. God is everywhere and yet his throne is beyond the universe in a place the scriptures call heaven. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold humankind. Psalms 11:4. God walked the earth in the person of Jesus who now rules with his father in heaven. Meanwhile, his spirit dwells in us. Yes, God is in heaven and yet he is also with us. God's word is eternal. The words we speak often are forgotten. At times we may even forget promises we've made. God, however, remembers every word he's spoken and he stands by his promises. When we take hold of his word, we can be certain he will be faithful to it. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. Mark 13, 31. God's word always accomplishes its purpose. In that way, in what way is God's word like the rain and snow? As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, Isaiah 55, 10. Whether it's to correct, teach, warn, encourage, or help us in some way, the word of God always succeeds. 
Okay. Alright, I think we're going to close out. Uh, let me just, uh, yeah, I'll close out. Um, I'll close out with uh, some things to encourage us to hold on. Patience. Excuse me. <clears throat> patience is powerful. As virtue goes, patience <laughs> is the strong, silent type. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a it's soft like tongue can break bones. Right? Proverbs 25, mm-hmm. 15. We've all read or watched stories about the quiet. Uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh. uh. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Stop. We've all read or watched stories about the quiet, patient man who finally wins the woman's the woman he's waited for, or the mother who, through undying patience and love, helps her child overcome seemingly impossible obstacles in order to thrive. Patience, while perhaps underrated, is a virtue, is actually very powerful and well worth acquiring. You heard me? Acquiring. We don't just have that. So if you're seeking to grow in patience these days, more power to you. Waiting for God is not futile. What are you waiting for? People shout impatiently if the first car doesn't move with the green light. Sometimes that's how we feel about waiting for God's purposes to unfold. But God is paying attention. He sees every factor. He knows every person. And he is working in every heart. In hope we were saved, said Paul. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8.24. So we wait patiently knowing God's light will always turn green. And that he will act when he, when it does. And sometimes we have to know. Sometimes it takes courage to wait for God. Sometimes God has us wait until the 11th hour before he shows us his plan of divine intervention in a situation. At such times, it's a real test of courage to trust him rather than hightailing it to the nearest escape hatch we can create for ourselves. Wait for the Lord, said the psalmist. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalms 27, 14. That courage is a wonderful act of trust and love toward our Heavenly Father. One that strengthens our faith as well as our relationship with God. Okay. So wait and have trust and um, stand on God's word. Be pa- know that patience is a virtue. Know that prayer changes things. Know that finally prayer acknowledges God as our provider. Scriptures remind us that God is the one who gives us the ability to make wealth. Mm. Again, scriptures remind us that God is the one who gives us the ability to make wealth. That's why Jesus said in his prayer, give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. Pausing before a meal to give thanks is just one way we can give glory to God for providing our food. 
but we don't need to stop there. There are so many ways God provides for us and lots of opportunities throughout the day to thank him for them. Amen. And know that finally God gives us everything we need to live well. If you've ever gone on a trip with someone who's a good planner, you know how valuable that person's foresight can be. Everything you need, everything you need is planned. Everything you need is taken care of. Well, life with God is like that. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness, said Peter. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, 2 Peter 1.3, the Lord has thought of everything we need to live a life pleasing to him, and he gives those things to us freely and fully. God gives us great promises. God's promises are precious because they pertain to the most meaningful and need, needful things in our lives. They are great because they are beyond anything we could ever have hoped for or imagined in their scope and power and because without fail, God will keep each one. God gives us promises. He has given us his precious and very great promises so that through them, we may escape from the corrupt, from the corruption that is in this world. Mm, 2 Peter 1.4. In this life, when a fortune can be lost in a moment, God assures us that his great promises stand secure. Amen. Okay. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of those scriptures, confirming things God wants us to know, confirming your awesomeness, confirming, God, that prayer changes things. Confirming that God is a provider, that God is a healer. Confirming that the Bible cannot lie, that God's word cannot lie. Confirming that the Bible is the oldest book on this earth. Confirming that God will take care of his people. Confirming that God can turn a, a curse into a blessing. God, we come before you to praise, exalt, and magnify your name. Thank you for the reading of, this, of the, those scriptures. Thank you for the reading about prayer changes things. Thank you, God, for praying targeted individuals. Thank you, God, for praying people, praying over the destruction, the demise of this sick, silent, secrecy, criminal, eugenic assassination program. The blood of Jesus is against every part of this targeted individual program. The blood of Jesus is against every part of this eugenics human research assassination program. The blood of Jesus is against this sick induced disease, induced poverty, tormentation of children, torture of people, the blood of Jesus is against it. And God, I stand on your word that prayer changes things. And I thank you, God, that you're bringing people to testify about the atrocities associated with this program. I bind and rebuke everything associated with our public officials not addressing directed energy weapons, 
the capabilities, the patents, the military use on civilians already documented. I plead the blood of Jesus that directed energy weapons will be wiped off this earth, that every demon from the pit of hell using those weapons will be prosecuted. I plead the blood, the blood of Jesus on that. Because see, without your health, you have nothing. So I, I plead the blood on that directed energy weapon. Every bit of radiation, every tumor, every cyst, every disaster that radiation induces, I plead the blood of Jesus against it. And I plead the blood of Jesus that their healings, that no weapon formed against God's people will prosper, that herbs will be used to, to uh, heal humanity, shield. I plead the blood of Jesus of every demon trying to usurp authority over man. I plead the blood of Jesus of every demon trying to usurp authority in our governing structures. I plead the blood of Jesus of, against every demon trying to usurp authority in our lives. And I thank you, God. I worship you. I honor you, Lord. I thank you, God, that there are countermeasures. I thank you, God, for the Bible that you left on this earth, the story of Job as a historical book to give us guidance, to let us know that you are a restorer, that everything the devil took away, God can give it back to you triple fold, a hundred fold. I thank you, God, for turning every curse into a blessing. I thank you, God, for building prayer warriors through this targeted individual program. I thank you, God, for praying people. I thank you, God, for the year 2019, that I think to be blessed, for the windows of heaven to be open, and that every test that comes before us, God, that we pass that test and we can go to the next level. God, this is my prayer. God, I give you all the praise. I give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, you guys still there? You guys still there? I had you on mute. Hello? Amy? I don't think I'm going to play the tape. Amy? There's no reason to play the tape then. Annie, baby, you still there? Oh, you still there? You want me to play? Yes, darling. You want me to play the tape? Okay, do you want me to play that tape? And you want to, it's a good tape. I'll play it. It's a TI tape. I'm going to, yeah, it's a TI tape. And for all of those that are, are listening on the tape recorder, um, I'm, I, I'm coming in through the internet because what they do to try uh, to limit uh, us getting uh, our calls out, they block the calls and they're charging people. So I come in through the internet and then I call the people. Uh, you just, in other words, you won't see them on the board, some of them, because they're not at the computer. But yes, they are charging people, and um, even myself, I have to come in through the computer because I'm not, 
I'm not paying. I don't just give. Excuse me, just give money away. But that's why you may not see many people in here. But I do um, call up the people and they uh, join in via me. Okay, here we go. We're looking at murder, manipulation, mind control, directed energy weapon use on Americans. This is from an inside whistleblower. This is not theory. This is someone that's living it. He's a whistleblower. They're uh, experimenting on their own employees. And so now, uh, it's a long story. I'll try to get they, through it quick. Now, now they've came, come against him. Uh, he has over a quarter million views. He calls it Silent Holocaust Talk. You can find it on the internet at ex-game-stalking operative explains tactics and motives. And here we go. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone. I'm sure you can imagine how difficult of a decision this was for me to decide to speak out publicly. And the support I've received has confirmed to me that I did make the right decision. And of course, uh, it was very much needed given the uh, severity of the problem that's sweeping the country right now in terms of gang stalking the boys to skull. Uh, so I just wanted to take the time to say that. Yeah, I, uh, I began working at SIS. Actually, um, I have friends and uh, family members who are military and military intelligence. And through them, uh, I had always heard, um, you know, job opportunities. I thought about joining the Marines when I was uh, younger, when I was 18. I'm 39 now. So um, over the years, it was something I had always thought about. And of course, after 9-11, um, so many jobs were created in the defense industries, homeland security, and what a lot of, a lot of people don't know about is within private security uh, domestically within, within the United States. It's a booming industry. It's one of the fastest growing sectors of our economy as uh, generally our society is being militarized and generally uh, that militarization is being privatized. And as a result, what you have is many, many corporations in the United States of America and private companies uh, that are getting a lot of money um, from investors under the table to begin to set up what I describe as a security um, apparatus around and within the United States of America. And it is in that context that I've heard of the opportunity to work for security industry specialists in uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, they're a private security company that is headquartered in Culver City, California. And through a friend, I heard that SIS was hiring. I heard they were hiring for security specialists. And given my background uh, in education, which is uh, actually anthropology and sociology, um, most people don't see how those two connect. But by studying human beings, uh, you can really do well within the intelligence uh, industry and within the security industry because it is all about uh, learning how to deal with and talk to and communicate with and ultimately from our perspective secure human beings and so it was through uh, friends and family that I learned about the opportunity and I started off like everybody else as a low-level security guard um, minimum wage I worked my way up through the company over time 
and uh, eventually was assigned to uh, executive protection and uh, threat assessment, risk management. And just to tell you a little bit about that, what my official duties were was to secure uh, personnel, data, and property uh, of VIPs that our company is hired to protect. So there's a whole lot of training that goes into that. And um, I became a security specialist for SIS, specializing in executive protection, also risk and threat assessment uh, to our clients. Our clients are the companies or the individuals that we contract out with and provide services for. And it was in that context uh, that I became aware of uh, what I describe as a social engineering program and uh, a research and development program that was being carried out by SIS uh, and our clients in Seattle, uh, the Amazon Corporation. And it was through moving up within it, the SIS um, hierarchy and working with more and more people as I was assigned to more and more assignments, I became aware of these, the existence of this program. And then little by little over time, I became aware of the extent of it. And it wasn't long before I realized how horribly out of control it was, how downright evil it was. Once I began to realize that SIS was experimenting on its own employees, my fellow security specialist, I was outraged. I later learned that um, my company was involved in a larger social engineering program that encompassed the entire city of Seattle. That aspect of the program was experimenting on the homeless population of Seattle, Washington, uh, who were housed in DESC, Downtown Emergency Services Center uh, facilities. And I later learned that they were indeed experimenting with, when I say experimenting, voice to skull, hive mind, behavior modification technology that is frequency based and directed at a targeted individual to basically control their entire person. Um, and it was uh, by moving up even more that I realized that this experimentation was going on uh, against the general population of Seattle. And then just the average man and woman on the street, upper class, um, upper, upper class, and even the flat out rich were having this technology used on them without their knowledge. Uh, as more and more informa information and details of the program became uh were made known to me, I became more and more outraged by it. And I spent a long time because I had many friends within the security company. A lot of these people are great people. Uh, they're very good people. Not everybody involved in SIS is directly involved in experimenting in pe on people. They're not all directly involved in gang stalking. I never was. I never partook in that. Uh, but I did partake in training uh, that deals with tactics and protocols that are used uh, normally for surveillance and counter-surveillance, uh, but within that is the all of the information and the know-how that you need to be able to gain stock, and that is in fact what they are doing. Um, and so over time, I, I became outraged, and um, I tried to play my cards right, wait for the right moment, and uh, when I really just couldn't tolerate it anymore, when I found out just how out of control it was, I decided to object to my superiors in person, but within SIS specifically, what happens is they are uh, experimenting on their own employees. So uh, it's a long story, I'll try to get through it quick, but basically people are selected from all over the country. Um, we're talking other cities all over America. They are selected uh, for many different reasons. Often it is because they are isolated, 
They don't have a lot of money, friends, or family. And they also tend to be people that are highly, highly intelligent. Um, the aspects of this technology that they're interested in improving upon have to do with cognitive processes, processing information, and as a result, they want highly intelligent people to be targets of this program. They also tend to target people who are into what I would call alternative research, uh, commonly called maybe conspiracy theories, people that disagree with the government, people that are into researching things like 9-11, uh, also, they are interested in people that are interested in technology. I have found a high percentage of targeted individuals to be people who either are interested in or have information on highly advanced technologies, usually having to do with directed energy weapons and frequency weapons, uh, the exact kind of weapons that we're talking about here that are used uh, in voice to skull um, and behavior modification, the works. There's many other aspects to the technology. But once these people are selected, um, they will have the entire gang stalking slash voice to skull program run against them. This is detailed in my article. Uh, but they will be organized stalked. They will have career um, sabotage programs run against them to ruin their job. They will have character assassinations camp campaigns run against them in their neighborhood. They'll be isolated from family and friends as those individuals are turned against them. And they will be isolated slowly and slowly over time using the technology itself. As uh, many of the people freak out understandably when they at first don't know what it is, oftentimes they end up going to psychiatrists and uh, false diagnoses of schizophrenia, manic depression, uh, delusion, delusional, paranoid, are rendered against this individual. And it turns out that that's a loophole in the law, law that they are using to take away people's constitutional rights, as once you are deemed mentally unfit to care for yourself, i.e. you're depressed, delusional, paranoid, etc., they use that, uh, the state or the federal government uses that as, as an excuse to come in and say that they have to care for you. So I would warn all targeted individuals out there, please do not go to psychiatrists and, and allow them to render a diagnosis against you because that is a dirty trick they're using to take away the rights of people all, all over the country. Uh, that's a great question. I do not have direct knowledge of that personally in terms of an individual, how they are selected. What I can speak to intelligently though is that each individual fits the general profile that I'm describing. So they're highly intelligent. Uh, they are able to be isolated by whatever means. They normally have some sort of a, what I would, what I would describe as a free mind. They're people that aren't, um, you know, part of the crowd, so to speak, in the way that they think. Um, you know, they're outsiders. They're what the government would call dissidents or revolutionaries or people that may be a problem. Uh, some TIs have, have said that this kind of profile that all TIs fits uh, is empowered individuals, and I would definitely agree with that. Um, but I cannot speak to how they actually identify an individual person. I think um, the general profile that I'm describing that fits uh, the targets of this program is something that is generated high up 
within the program. We're talking at the federal government level. We're talking at the highest levels of this social engineering program where scientists from all over the country and all over the world, they're looking at someone's genetics. They're looking at someone's cognitive abilities. They're looking at someone's uh, genes. Uh, they're looking at someone's DNA. They're looking at people's um, social situation. They're looking at people's career. I've been very surprised that so many PhDs are actually targets of this program. Um, and they're usually PhDs that have gone against the grain in terms of what academ academia normally teaches, uh, usually within the fields of science and technology. And the reason for this is because people running the program want to cover up certain technologies and certain aspects of science that can lead through to tremendous, tremendous breakthroughs. Um, these highest levels of science and technology are the sole purview of classified sectors of our government and military. And as a result, uh, it is not the opinion is that the American people do not have the right to this information and is in the national security interest of our country to keep it classified. Um, and so that that is is the answer to your question. What I will do, though, is take this opportunity to distinguish um, really quickly between the larger phenomenon of TIs uh, that is usually a, in a, a person in America that's being uh, targeted by the technology and is being gang stalked by members of their community and the specific program that I am um, whistleblowing on. The specific program I am whistleblowing on involves uh, the actual abduction of TIs from around America. They're put on a Greyhound bus and they are shipped to Seattle where they are, are made homeless. They live in one of the homeless shelters where they are housed and experimented on with voice to skull technology. Mm. And then they become, are, are uh, funneled into SIS to work as low level security guards where they are experimented on even more. Mm. Um, so that is a specific program and that's what I detail in my blog and my website. But because I am familiar with that program that utilizes the same tactics, gang stalking and the use of this technology against individuals, uh, my knowledge on that program applies to what all TIs are going through. It's the exact same technology and it's the exact same uh, gang stalking tactics that are used against them. In terms of numbers, I know that there are right now at least three to 400 individuals in downtown Seattle that have been abducted from all over the United States, brought to downtown Seattle, and are being housed in DESC, Downtown Emergency Services Center, um, homeless shelters, and being experimented on 24-7. Uh, the numbers of SIS employees that have been experimented on, to my knowledge, is in the dozens. Uh, that's all I have direct knowledge of, though, uh, about 24 to 36. And then nationwide, uh, the estimates in terms of targeted individuals who are still maintain some manner of autonomy and freedom and have not been brought to Seattle or enslaved completely by this. Uh, the estimates I have heard is anywhere from one uh, to two million at the moment. And we're talking full-blown TIs that get the technology and are being gang stalked 24-7. Those are the estimates that I'm familiar with. The, uh, this is discussed very much in the open uh, within SIS and with uh, some of the liaison contacts that I had with DESC Amazon, and then also members of the military uh, that are in a civilian capacity. Uh, one thing you have to understand is that within the security 
uh, business, most of the people working there are ex-military and ex-intelligence operatives. And many of them, in fact, are still active intelligence operatives and are, have simply been reassigned to domestic duty to work with a private security company, specifically for the purposes of carrying out this highly illegal program that's being run against TIs all over uh, America. So full-blown TIs, what I would call people that are getting the voice to skull, the frequency, and the organized stalking, I have heard is between one and two million, and that could be completely off. But one of the things I'm concerned about is the technology as it's being researched and developed in Seattle utilizes emotion manipulation and behavior manipulation uh, without the gang stalking and without the voice to skull aspects. And so this use of the technology can be done very covertly to the point where the person it's being used against will not know that this technology is being used against them. And that is one of my main concerns and one of the reasons why I want to bring more light to this technology and to this issue, because this technology could potentially be, be being used against tens to hundreds of millions of Americans every day. I, rec I um, mentioned in some of my podcasts how there are field effects where they will not direct this technology at an individual, but create a general field of frequency in a geographical area so that everybody that within that geographical area is feeling the effects of the technology. It's more of a general application of the technology instead of an individual specific application of the technology. But when you consider that use of it and the fact that it is used for emotion and thought and behavior modification, then we could potentially be looking at many, many millions of people across the country that are under the influence of the technology uh, today, right now. The area of the geographical areas that I'm familiar with are limited to the size of maybe a downtown area of a city uh, so that the frequency that's being emitted by the device um, will have an effect on a, on a geographical location, let's say downtown Seattle. And so what they can do is within this general field, they can um, broadcast a frequency that affects human beings within that frequency field and can induce a general mood of, let's say, happiness or sadness, anger, agitation, peacefulness. And in this way, they can have an overall effect in the city. And I have seen this done. It is remarkable how effective it is because you will walk down the street of Seattle and literally see people all in a bad mood all at the same time and they do not know each other and then you go over a block or two to a different office building and you walk in and the exact same things going on there it's very um it's very very concerning so within that then that overall bubble or, or or area of frequency where everybody let's say is in a bad mood they can still inject uh what would be a individual specific frequency to the targeted individual themselves, let's say the homeless person in Seattle that's being experimented on 24 hours a day. So they will be under the influence of the general agitated mood or bad mood that everybody else is in, and then they can more further be manipulated by the frequency that's being directed um, solely at them. Would this affect crime rates, auto accidents? Absolutely, yes. That is exactly what the uh, people running this program have in mind in terms of application uh, of this particular feature. It is to, uh, or at least it can be used to induce riots, for example, 
or stop riots. It could be very, very dangerous. And it's a great point you bring up about traffic patterns and auto accidents. I mean, this is, this is messing with the innermost part of human beings, their emotions. And so you can imagine how irresponsible it is to actually manipulate someone into being a bad mood, in a bad mood and manipulate everybody in town into being bad, in a bad mood. And then they get in their cars and they drive around where their, their own safety and other people's safety is at risk. It's a huge, huge problem. And you can imagine the applications of, of this. If anyone ever wanted to start a riot, if ever, uh, anyone ever wanted to increase the crime rate, um, and then, of course, you know, you can use it for the exact same opposite. You can use it to decrease the crime rate by making everyone passive. And that could have nefarious applications as well. If you want people to, to be passive and not pay attention and, and not uh, take action, uh, it can be used for, for that as well. So, yes, the, the mind is boggled by the possibilities uh, in terms of what this could be used for. The radio frequencies, um, microwave signals, uh, the entire spectrum um, of radio frequencies can be used um, within a certain range uh, to produce all sorts of different effects. So the, what, the way it works is a device broadcasts a radio frequency, let's say at an individual, and that radio frequency will hook up with the resonance frequency of the individual's mind or body, or in this case, DNA. And what happens is once the resonant frequency is found in the targeted individual and the broadcast frequency matches up with that resonant frequency, those two frequencies interlock and they can be thought of as one frequency or one energy. And what happens is between the broadcast frequency and the individual that's receiving the broadcast frequency, once it's resonating, uh, once they are resonating together, a, a super highway of frequency along which information can be sent is created. And so you can think of it just like fiber optic cables that you use to send uh, signals over the internet that connect people to the internet. It's the exact same thing, only a wireless application of that. And so once you have connected the targeted individual with the frequency um, and they resonate together, then you have a perfect uh, avenue upon which to send and receive information back and forth. And that's exactly how they manipulate someone's thoughts. They send voices into someone's head. Uh, they manipulate their emotions. They manipulate their behavior. And then that's also how they receive back from the individual in real time uh, the vital signs, the emotions, the thoughts, uh, what the person's seeing, what the person's hearing. And then all that information, of course, is rendered on a computer mm. elsewhere uh, via software, and it can be monitored and tracked in real time. Mm. It can literally stop your own thoughts from happening and replace them with other thoughts uh, by sending thoughts to your head. And it's so sophisticated that you cannot tell where these thoughts are coming from. There's no way to, to discern that they are coming from somewhere other than your own mind. So you can imagine how bad this would be for people that don't even realize this technology exists. And they're having these thoughts, which they think are spontaneous because uh, being under the influence of this technology now, kind of haven't been on both sides of it, I am, I am just amazed um, at the way it works. And I know that the thoughts that they beam into your head originate from the exact same place in your mind that your own natural thoughts originate from. So if I didn't know I was under the influence of this technology, then I would have no idea 
that anyone was influencing my thoughts at all. And that's exactly what it can be used for. It can be used to sway people in terms of their opinion, to make them go along with a certain agenda. It can be used to turn groups of people or individuals against each other uh, for whatever purpose. And uh, actually, this exact same technology can be used um, to not only influence the thoughts of someone, but also uh, the voice box of someone. And it came to mind because you mentioned a politician. I heard that they actually used this uh, on George Bush uh, Jr. once, George W. Bush, when he was giving a speech because he could not remember his lines. I have sent you a comprehensive energy plan to devastate communities, kill wildlife, and burn away millions of acres of treasured forests. Chabad save lives. Uh, this is the type of thing that could be used to give a politician the words that they need to say. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. So that they will come across and deliver the message in the way someone else wants them to deliver this, uh, deliver the message. So messing with people's thoughts uh, is really, really concerning. And it is so advanced now that they can do it without people even realizing it's being done. And the thing that shocked me about it is it's not being done you know, in a secret military base somewhere. And it's not being done in a controlled environment where people are being kept safe and separate. You know, the test subjects are kept separate from the general public so that nobody gets hurt. The entire city of Seattle has been turned into a massive proving ground for this technology. And it's being done right out in the streets. It's being used against people uh, that are driving. It's being used against people that are trying to live in a city environment with the congestion and all the other people around uh, that you have in that environment. And so the potential for accidents and things to get out of control and for people to get seriously hurt and indeed be killed by this uh, is real. And it's happening all the time. And yeah, I think it just shows just how not only out of control this program is, but how completely unchecked the research and development um, aspect of our national security structure has become. Uh, they are completely immune to any oversight, to any consequences, to anything they're doing. And I just could not believe that this research and development part of this program was so advanced and was so widespread and it was so out in the open um, in places like Seattle. And I encourage anyone that's in Seattle, please do go there or that's near Seattle, take a trip there and spend a week, you know, on vacation. If you got the money to do it, I would recommend it and, and visit DESC and visit SIS at 1415 Western Avenue, Seattle, Washington, visit Amazon, visit the Apollo, Nessie, Bigfoot, Cricket buildings, um, visit these places and begin to look around and observe, especially if you're a TI that knows the symptoms of the technology because you're an expert in it because it's being used on you. Um, you know just as much as I do. Well, maybe not the version that I'm aware of being used in Seattle, but you're getting a version of it so you know what to look for. Go there and, and, and watch the homeless people. Watch their behavior. Look at their teeth as all the people have their, the, one of the effects, I'm sorry to say for GIs out there, is this technology will actually radiate the teeth right out of your mouth uh, prematurely. And I know uh, in Seattle and elsewhere, people are in their 30s, you know, they're brushing floss every single day that are having their teeth just fall out, sometimes whole. Uh, they're swallowing them in their, in their sleep, they're choking on them. I mean, this has devastating effects on the physiology uh, of the human being. But go down there and look. It's, the signs are every, everywhere, and you will be 
fascinated and your mind will be blown at just how out me open uh, it is. But I'm sorry, in terms of other places, uh, I am aware of Aurora, Colorado. Um, when I decided to blow the whistle and this technology was turned against me, a massive organized stalking efforts uh, was launched against me. And due to my training, I recognize the tactics that are used uh, by these individuals, and it is high up. There is a military intelligence aspect of it, uh, and I won't go into that any further other than to say that the people who are, are um, after me, who are monitoring me, uh, are very, very good at what they do. They're, they're the best in the world, and it's one of the things that has kept me so busy, and I've been so unable to really tend to anything else in my life. Even getting the word out is because I'm fending these people off and fighting back against them 24 hours a day. Um, but I eventually end up, ended up in Aurora, Colorado, uh, right next to Buckley Air Force Base. And um, it turns out that this town as well is a major hub for this social engineering program. Aurora, Colorado is a town that has a massive, uh, a large percentage of military personnel that live here. Uh, the adjacent base, also intelligence, uh, families, um, live here as well uh, when they're assigned overseas this is where they would live when they're back on the home front domestically and you can tell that this uh, technology is being used uh, on the people of aurora colorado many of whom serve in the military and as i mentioned before it's not only the general population of seattle the homeless and ti's but this technology is being used against military families people who proudly and bravely serve their country and uh, sacrifice everything so that you and i can be free or at least we were able to be free before this uh, this technology started yeah. being used against us. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's here as well, and there are some other cities. It seems to be adjacent to military bases. I've, I've heard this from a lot of people, and I've noticed it as well. If you have a massive Air Force base uh, near you, uh, Navy as well on the coast, um, there is a there's a good chance that some aspects of this program are being uh, run at the adjacent military base and is being used on the, the towns and the people around that base. And uh, I was not aware either of just how widespread uh, the security industry was in terms of its numbers and in terms of its power within the United States of America. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And uh, it's a great point you make, uh, a million personnel, and just think of that in terms of standing armies. Uh, look up some of the uh, numbers on active military personnel in countries like Russia and China and the United States, the European Union, and you'll start to understand just how many, you know, one million uh, people uh, are and what can be done with that type of manpower uh, in a situation like this domestically. So... One of the things um, I think that that is an advantage of the security industry, number one, it's private. So if you were going to roll out an army of gang stalkers across the United States to mess with people, to track people, to surveil people, to follow people, and to make their lives uh, a general hell uh, to live every day, then you would have to do it covertly. You would have to do it in a way that is not noticeable to the rest of society. And in fact, the tactics that are used by private security companies and gang stalkers at large are specifically designed to avoid detection, not from the targeted individual, but to avoid detection from the general public. And so it's a, it's a very interesting surveillance situation. It, it fits right in with other surveillance situ situations where they want the targeted individual to know that they're following them. 
And so in a normal surveillance situation, you do not want the person you're following to know that you're following them. They actually want the TI to know they're being followed because it has the maximum psychological impact. While at the same time, they need to do it in a way that your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and your family do not know that they are doing this to you because the entire point of the program is to convince everybody else that the, the TI is crazy. And so they need to surveil you and gang stalk you in such a way that other people don't notice that they're doing it. And so what happens is I was actually with a friend when we were driving uh, from Seattle and I decided to leave. It was one of the last friends that I was able to have before this massive organizing, organized stalking campaign uh, completely destroyed uh, my life as well. And now I'm completely isolated as well. But I was driving with a friend and we were being followed by people, obviously gang stalkers and uh, military intelligence in my case. But they drive in, in, in regular vehicles. They're in modern uh, trucks, SUVs, sedans, every kind of car. Uh, many of them are toy or excuse me, Chevys. And uh, if you're being, I think a lot of TIs uh, have noticed this as well. Chevy seems to have some kind of a deal with these security companies. And I know, for example, my security company uh, purchased most of their vehicles from a particular car company. So these are some of the things I noticed. But we're being followed by these people. And what they will do is the otherwise unmarked car will have military stickers on it. They'll have license plates that say Air Force. They'll have stickers that say Marine Corps or Army. And um, generally, the personnel as well fit a general description. A lot of them have tattoos. A lot of them are young. A lot of them um, appear to be, you know, very young, maybe a, a military type of a look, only with kind of a, a gangster type of a a vibe to them. And I think that's for the purposes of intimidation. And I know uh, that is one of the psychological aspects of what I learned at SIS in terms of gang stalking is the image you're projecting is very important. It is scientifically planned down to the last detail to have a very specific psychological effect on the target. Um, but anyway, we're driving and we see all these cars around us and they all have military and uh, Marine Corps, Air Force, and my friend said, you know, is that the Air Force following us? Is that the Marine Corps following us? Are these people, you know, military? And it's a very good question. And it's, they are trying to give that impress, impression that who's following you is active military. And of course, that's not the case at all. They are private security contractors, or they are at least intelligence operatives that are operating domestically under the cover of being a, a um, private security contractor. And the reason they put those stickers there is to give the impression they're military. And so what you have a lot of times, the way they get license plates that say Air Force engraved on them is they are former Air Force. The way they get some of these uh, insignias on their car, they are former Marines and they are now retired. And after active duty, a lot of them need jobs and they are being hired by the thousands each and every day to staff private security companies all over the country. And private security companies and private investigators, what they do is they investigate, they surveil, they follow, and they carry out covert intelligence and investigative operations domestically in a way that can't be protected. It's the perfect way to carry out gang stalking operations against TIs. And the, uh, the number one rule uh, in intelligence work and in, in security work in terms of uh, at least people that are going to be surveilling the public is to remain undetected. And so in terms of a profile, they go out of their way 
to hire people of diverse ethnic backgrounds, um, each gender, all age ranges, more or less. Um, there's obviously limitations if you know uh, if you're too old to be able to follow people on foot. Uh, but I've noticed a lot of the mobile uh, details, a lot of the mobile assignments will be carried out by uh, the more elderly of the private security contractors because they can't be operating in an inner city, for example, uh, on foot, walking up hills and so forth. People with disabilities as well uh, cannot do that. So there'll be mobile units. Uh, static and mobile units are the two basic units you have within private security, and then they're assigned to different assignments. Um, but yeah, as, as far as the profile, uh, they are ex-military, they are ex-intelligence. Uh, many people, um, like myself, have no ties to that, but they start off um, low in the company as a security guard, uh, maybe executive protection, maybe risk uh, threat assessments, maybe they have an IT background so they get in that way, uh, and then they're trained little by little to be led into the gang stalking and kind of the covert aspect of the company, which is involved in this social engineering program domestically to target TIs. Uh, and so what you have is, in terms of a street gang stalker, the kind of people that will have constant contact with uh, the TI on a regular basis for the purposes of being known as gang stalkers to the TI, they will have a, a certain profile physically. Uh, the men will often be very strong. They work out. They're buff, for lack of a better term. Uh, they will have a generally intimidating demeanor. Although when you talk to these people, of course, they could be completely nice, um, very, very decent people, most of them. They're just they're doing their job, and I don't think there's any way they have to get out of it because they all know if they, if they come forward and they say something, then they're going to get gang stalked as well. And unfortunately, I, I'm proving that by the way that I'm being targeted and gang stalked and the technology is being used against me. Um, but this is this is the general appearance that they give, and so it's to be intimidating. And there's a very fine line between kind of the military intimidation and what you would call a gangster or a thug intimidation. And both aspects, of course, are there on purpose. And gang stalking has been designed specifically to have both aspects there. Uh, they want you to believe that your country hates you. They also want you to believe that you're in great danger all the time. And the thug gangster aspect of the vibe that they're giving off is there specifically for that reason. And so you can start to see how psychologically this is going to have an effect on someone very, very quickly. If they're under the impression that the military, their own government, and then a bunch of thugs are following and chasing them around the country, uh, it has a devastating psychological effect. There is a um, precedent, I will say, that I'm aware of for hiring people that have displayed a certain moral uh, ambiguity concerning certain issues. Uh, for example, uh, within certain private company, uh, security companies in the Seattle area, there are a lot of ex-LAPD. Um, in fact, when the Rodney King riots went down and a lot of the scandals that went on, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, the LAPD went through several stages of reform, and anybody from LA, of course, will remember this. And the people that were forced out of LAPD ended up almost exclusively going to work for private security companies. So you can imagine the types of characters uh, that ended up in private security companies when the LAPD didn't want them anymore. Um, also, people that have criminal backgrounds are often... Um, coveted for gang-stalking type of assignments. Uh, the reason for this is that they do not mind, obviously, 
mistreating other people. Uh, they have what could be called a criminal mentality. Um, but it's also important to note that despite the unsavory characters that are within this, the entire point of it uh, is a hands-off policy. And this is very, very evil the way they're doing this. So, uh, I mean, not in any way defending them. I'm making the opposite point. The hands-off policy is in place by private security companies and gang stalkers, the federal government, and everybody else involved in this, specifically to have the excuse and say, we didn't actually physically harm this person. We never struck them. We never shot them. We never hit them. We never did any physical harm to them. So everything that's done by this program is meant to have a psychological effect. And the psychological effect is meant to complement the effect that the technology is having on the individual so that they are brought to a place in their life where they're isolated, they're broke, they're unemployed, they have no family, they have no friends, and nobody in the general public can track or trace anything that's being done to them because the technology is remote and it's wireless and there's usually no physical signs left on the individual that anything is being done to them. And the interaction with gang stalkers within the community, there is no physical evidence that any gang stalking ever went on. They are specifically instructed, you know, do not slash anyone's tires. Don't, you know, uh, vandalize their house. That is not the point of the program. The point of the program is to have maximum psychological effect and leave the minimal amount of evidence. And so you can see how this hands-off policy, and this is a standard term that's used within the private security industry in terms of what security guards and security personnel are supposed to do uh, in terms of a threat. You are supposed to maintain a hands-off policy uh, at all costs until you absolutely must intervene physically or with, or with use of force. And so that's kind of like uh, an industry term that's been adopted by gang stalkers as a hands-off policy against the TI so that when that person ends up in a hospital or ends up physically deteriorated, they can't turn around and blame the gang stalkers because they were never quote unquote touched or physically harmed by them, even though all of the harm that's done to TIs is done by the gang stalkers, it's done by the federal government that endorses this program, and it's done by the technology. And therefore, the gang stalkers, the technology, and the federal government is liable and responsible 100% for everything that's been done to the TI. Nobody advertises, you know, on Craigslist that we're hiring you to harass and torture people. It's just not done. And I can speak personally for myself and I can speak personally for the people I worked at, with at SIS that when you do first find out what's going on, you are disgusted by it. You cannot believe that this is what's going on. There is also a very quick, um, almost a peer pressure induced acceptance of it that causes you to say, you know, this is pretty cool. And I'm just being flat out honest here about the psychology that's going on within these people's minds. It's pretty cool. We're, we're part of the group. We're part of the massive army of people that is going to be okay no matter what because we're on the right side of this because we're the people with all the power. We're the people that with ties to the intelligence agencies. We're the people with ties to the government. We're the people that are going to be okay no matter what because you know, we are willing to violate the law to get away with whatever we want to get away with. And our superiors and our bosses are as well. So as long as we make them happy and we do our job, we're going to have a pretty good life. And I can tell you that this is exactly what is done to people um, almost immediately upon the revealing of what 
is really going on. They are offered a series of incentives. They're offered, uh, first of all, acceptance into the group. They're offered um, acceptance into what will be the future of America, that you will be set, you and your girlfriend, or if you're married, you and your wife, your husband, your children are going to be taken care of. You're going to make a lot of money. You're going to have brand new cars every couple of years. Your kids are going to go to the best schools and you are going to be connected for lack of a better term. And, and at this point, it really does take on almost an organized crime feel to it because what you're, what you're dealing with are people that are pleasing their boss in order to do something that is absolutely illegal. They're, they're monitoring and harassing and, tor and torturing and sometimes leading to the death of American citizens. They're violating their civil rights. They're violating their human rights. They're violating basic human decency. This is, this is horrible stuff that's being done to people. And so you have to understand the psychological aspect that goes into convincing gang stalkers and people that are part of the program to do what they're doing. Uh, it is a very, in fact, the psychological operation that is run against gang stalkers themselves and people that participate in the program is just as advanced, if not more so than the psychological program that is run against TIs. It absolutely is. And so what you have is this very intense psychological program that's run. In fact, uh, one of the things that I'm not sure people are aware of, but I'm trying to cover this on my site because I have direct knowledge of it, hive minds, voice to skull, emotion manipulation behavior, uh, modification technology is being used against the gang stalkers themselves and against people in the program. And it is being used to assist them in doing their job specifically to take away their conscience, specifically to take away their empathy and their sympathy for the individual, for the targeted individual, so that they don't feel bad, so that they don't feel guilty about what they're doing. They are, are, you know, many times intelligence agents and soldiers are trained to get the empathy and the sympathy out of their system because you're going to be asked to kill someone for us. You're going to have to go on the battlefield and shoot someone, and you're going to shoot them just because we tell you to shoot them. And so a lot of the stuff that goes on in basic training and in terms of training intelligence operatives is designed specifically to make sure that people will pull the trigger when they need to. And stuff like human decency and love and compassion and empathy and sympathy and caring for your fellow human being does not enter into the decision-making process. And so the exact same thing is done within the program, within the Voice to Skull Gang Stalking program. And it is done not only by peer pressure and direct training, it is also handled by the technology that can manipulate the people's emotions to turn off empathy and sympathy and love and care and compassion, and to turn on what I call almost a mercenary hired gunman mentality. And the reward for going along with this is you get to be part of the social group. Look at the TI and how isolated they are. Look at how horrible their life is. Look at how sad it is. And every time I think about it, I start to choke up. It's so overwhelming. My heart just naturally goes out to these people and I want to help them. But when you're the gang stalker under the use, under, under the influence of this technology and the influence of the peer pressure and everything else, you don't feel that. And if you do, the technology is going to take it right out of your system. But look at the TI, how isolated they are. You're not going to be isolated like that because you're one of us. These are your people. Look around at all the other gang stalkers. Look at all, around at the military and the intelligence services of the United States of America. Look at the local and state police. Look at the social workers. These are our people. 
You can date any one of these women that you want. You can date any one of these men that you want. Heck, we'll help you hook up. You can come and party with us and go out to dinner and do all the things that people do together. And that T.I. can't. That T.I. can't because of X, Y, and Z. That T.I. can't because he's on the wrong side of this. You're very, very lucky to be on the right side, and don't you ever do anything to mess it up because you will end up right where that T.I. is. You're not going to be one of us anymore. You're going to be isolated. You're going to be gang stalked. You're going to be tortured 24 hours a day by the most horrific technology ever conceived by the mind of man, and you are going to die, grow old, and die alone. And unfortunately... You know, now I'm saying that I have this self-realization moment. I mean, that's exactly what's happening with me. And I can totally and completely understand how that is a very, very effective strategy to get people to go along with being a gang stalker and to help cover up this program. The entire point of this uh, social engineering program that has been researched and developed for decades now uh, the full intent within the program, everything that's planned going forward, the day-to-day -day attitude of all the people, is that this program is going to be rolled out nationwide, and it will become the norm. Every man, woman, and child in America will be under the influence of this technology. Every man, woman, and child in America will be one decision away from having gang stalkers turned against them. And the people making these decisions, of course, are not answerable to the American people. They were not elected. They did not pass any tests or go through any gates of initiations, to, initiations to, to, to prove that they're worthy to have this responsibility. They just make the decision, and you're a TI, and that's it. Every single man, woman, and child in the United States of America will be under the influence of this technology. And as you can see going forward, What's going to happen is a, is a dividing line is going to be drawn in America. And it's not going to be Democrat or Republican or black and white, rich, poor, you know, Jew, Gentile, religious differences, whatever it is. It's going to be based on who is on the right and the wrong side of this technology, who is on the right and the wrong side of this program. And so if you are not a part of this program, then there is a very real risk that you are going to become a full-blown, 24-7 targeted individual. And this technology at that point, when it is nationwide, will be used by automated computer, supercomputer software programming uh, that will manipulate the emotions and the behavior and the thoughts of everybody in the United States of America. And it can all be done remotely. It's very much like the, the microchip kind of uh, tracking the New World Order, this entire, you know, uh, control grid that's supposed to be rolled out against the American people someday. And I'm here to tell you that uh, it's already here. There isn't going to come a day where there's troops in the streets and tanks rolling down uh, your neighborhood and riot gear and all this stuff. We might have isolated incidents like that. It might get like that every once in a while. But the, the true control grid is this technology, voice to skull, hive mind, behavior manipulation technology. And it can all be done remotely. It can be done simply by targeting you with the frequency locking into the resonant frequency of your DNA and your mind, and in that manner, completely track and trace and control you uh, 24 hours a day. And so the dividing line is going to be between people on one side of this technology and people on the other. And so if you are a gang stalker right now, if you're in the private security industry, if you're in the military, intelligence, local state police, community watch groups, what have you, 
the reason so many people are joining into this, the reason so many people end up on that side of the fence is because it is the only game in town. There is one side and you're either with us or you're, or you're against us. And so going for, you know, that's exactly what I had to think about when I decided to make this decision. That is exactly what went through my mind. And that's why it took me so long to decide what to do about this, because, you know, it is you are you are marking yourself. You are you are standing up and saying, hey, everybody, look at me. I don't like you. I don't like your program and I'm going to do everything I can to get it shut down. And I was fully aware the entire time that I was you know, thinking about doing that, exactly what was going to happen to me. They were going to torture me. They were going to destroy all my relationships with friends and family. And I was never going to be able to make a living again. And in my mind, it just came down to the victims. It came down to targeted individuals all over America who are suffering every single day, who are crying out for help, who are curled up in a ball in the corner, in their bedroom, in horrible physical pain and horrible emotional pain, and no, nobody will help them. Everybody calls them crazy. Everybody says, you know, the, there's something wrong with them. Friends and family abandoned them. Their, their relationships with their significant others are ruined. Their kids are taken away from them. And the homeless people in Seattle are now homeless. Some of the most brilliant men and women I've ever known in my life, as I got to know them, are now homeless. And they have no way to get out because the DESC is specifically making sure, going out of their way to make sure they can't get jobs and they can't find homes. So if a game stalker wants to think about coming forward, this is this is the decision that they face. Um, but, you know, are you willing to risk everything to try to save this country, um, to try to save the individual out there who's on the receiving end of this program and is suffering and needs our help? And I'm hoping that by me coming forward and doing the best I can and for surviving as long as I can, I will inspire other insiders and give them the courage and the hope they need to make that decision as well and see if we can't start making some progress against this thing. What is going on in America today is exactly what you just said. Some people are being recruited into this program and some people are becoming the target of this matrix system of technological and signal intelligence and human intelligence control of the individual and of society. And that is exactly uh, what goes on within not only the private security industry, but the program as a whole in Seattle and what um, was done to me after I decided to come forward. The, the choice is very clear. You either, you're either with us or you're against us. And all of the resources that they cut you off from when you're a TI, like I am now as a whistleblower, uh, the jobs that you can't get, the coworkers that you can't make friends with, the, the relationships you can't have with people, all of that that you cannot have is exactly what the gang stalkers are being promised if they join. That's everything you can have and more. We're going to give you money. We're going to give you access to the finest women and the best drugs and the best connections and the best jobs and the best life that you can possibly imagine. You made it. And this is your ticket to the top and you're going to come to the top with us. This is exactly what these people are being told. It is exactly why these, this seemingly inexplicable behavior by our fellow human beings. This is why it's happening because they're being promised the sun, the moon and the stars. They're being promised the opportunity to be a part of history, to be a part of the ruling class, to be a part of a system that is not defined by appearance of 
camo and military machine guns and the, the American flag and God bless America and all the stuff that you associate with power in America. These are people that look exactly like you and me. These are people that are wearing their hats backwards and baggy jeans. They're people that are dressed in modern attire. They're people that rock the modern vernacular and slang. These are people that go to the same bars and clubs that we do. These are the people that go to the same schools that we do. These are the people that watch the exact same videos on the Internet that we do. They are like us in every single way. They are, they are Americans, first and foremost. And because the nature of this program is so covert, that cover must be maintained at all costs. And so this is why you see kind of this profile of the people that are, are targeting you. They're, they're, they do not fit one particular profile. If you're in corporate America right now, I guarantee you, you're going to get corporate gang stalkers. And that is the whole point of it, that they have people in all levels of society, all ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds, and they can activate them one by one and group by group, wherever you are in the country. And unfortunately, if, if you're on the wrong side of that, you have access to no of those, none of those resources. And you are looked at as an outcast and an outsider and some of you just can't be part of it. There's a few questions that I have. These people that are doing this, the gang stalking, they're doing it on the pretense of that we're criminals, correct? Uh, correct. Really quickly, yes, that is the premise that they use to uh, to assassinate your character amongst gang stalkers. Uh, usually there's no actual crime that's been committed, so you're not in fact criminals, but yes, that is the lie that's told. Well, no, I know I'm not a criminal, but that's how they get them to do what they're doing. Correct, yes. Normally there is uh, part of the uh, character assassination campaign that's run. There are lies, there are rumors that are spread about the targeted individual. And so when it's in relation to the TI, uh, all sorts of stuff is said about them. Uh, in every case, it's never true. So I can testify as a gang stalker on that side of it that all of the gang stalkers know it's not true. Uh, but it, it is used to generally degrade the character of the TI uh, so that they're looked at, you know, in general as a scumbag. You're absolutely right. Okay. All right. And is there a production team that is in charge of that? Absolutely. Yeah, there is a command and control structure uh, that is uh, in charge of normally um, a targeted individual. So any elements of the program that need to be run in relation to that TI will be coordinated by a supervisor. And the supervisor um, will work with people that are in control of the technology on one side and then the organized stalking or the street theater on the other side. So you do have a very uh, stringent uh, command and control structure. The one that I was a part of, of course, involved SIS and SIS exclusively. Um, but I have heard from others and general knowledge of the program that's being run around. This could involve people in local uh, and state police as well uh, as what I would call intelligence uh, operatives or assets. They are private corporations that do stuff like talent, uh, agencies, recognizing talent, logistics specialists, technology specialists, and then uh, coordination specialists.
Evening, I just wanted to make one mention of something I see happening up here, and it has to do with the police stations here are now putting in mental wings for the mentally handicapped instead of private institutions or anything like that. I don't know if that's happening anywhere else, but that was very creepy to me. In the major police stations, they are putting in mental wings. So they will be in charge, more or less. Wow, I haven't heard that. That's very scary. The question I wanted to ask is with the DNA, when you have somebody's DNA, you can then realize the tendencies they have towards certain diseases. With this knowledge, do you have any idea whether they're planning or already are? How do I want to say this? Um, um, stirring up that particular tendency and creating that particular disease in that person. Well, thank you. That was a, a great question, and thank you for the info concerning the mental wings and the uh, police oh, scary. stage. Absolutely, because that is exactly the pretext that they use a lot of times to get the excuse to target individuals is, you know, obviously coming up with a false psychological diagnosis. So thank you for that. Um, the, the DNA. That's where I live. That's where it's happening. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, as far as the DNA goes, in principle, in theory, what you're saying is absolutely correct. Uh, frequencies can be used to manipulate someone's DNA and then uh, help to bring about what is a otherwise natural tendency within their genetics. So I can confirm that that's true, and I can confirm that uh, within the scientific research community, that's being done right now. There's DNA-based research is being done normally to cure diseases, obviously, but if it can be done to cure diseases, then certainly someone with more nefarious goals in mind could, could use it to engineer diseases and to bring things about. Uh, so that is absolutely a major concern, and I think that's one of the reasons we have to get a hold on the entire research and development apparatus of this country, the entire program, the way things are done in secret, and scientific advancements are siphoned off for military and intelligence purposes first, and then everybody else gets them. And the problem so, with so that is exactly what you said. Isn't being done yet? Uh, not that I know specifically, no. I cannot say that I have direct knowledge of that. Uh, what I can say, though, is that Amazon has billions and billions of dollars invested uh, in a program that is used to study just those things. So if we wanted to find out who might have that knowledge, Amazon might be a good place to start. And I think you indicated that they won't hurt us physically or vandalize or sabotage our property, but I've had all of the above. Um, I've literally been systematically maimed through workers' comp medical procedures, uh, my entire back, my spinal column from my skull all the way down to my tailbone has been sabotaged. Um, I was, in fact, at a, at a third lumbar ESI procedure, I was brutally forced under anesthesia, screaming uh, for the doctor to stop. And when I woke up, my entire back had been maimed and muscles were pulled off my back. I had injections throughout my back, my neck, my shoulders, uh, injections into my liver, into my esophagus, um, all the way, I mean, prolific damage. I'm now disabled. Uh, so is that part of the military government experimentation or was I placed there 
do you think can corporations like insurance carriers or employers place their uh, people into these programs? Absolutely, yes. And Cece, I'm very sorry to hear about uh, your condition and everything that happened to you. That is horrible, and I can't imagine the pain that you're in. And um, I do want to just clarify in terms of the hands-off policy, I am in no way suggesting that these people do not harm people physically. Uh, I was, I'm speaking about obviously a what is a general uh, rule and a, a general um, outline that people follow. With specific um, people, they could very well cross lines and borders and, and do that sort of thing. Um, in terms of the medical, um, this was done under surgery. So it could be that the, the doctors you were under the care of uh, were very much not concerned at all with, with your well-being. It sounds like they really messed up the surgery. And when you woke no, up, they, you were worse off. This happened over a period of a year and a half, and it just kept getting worse. And I, I couldn't figure out why I kept getting worse until the last lumbar epidural, which was the third one. Even the physical therapist maimed me. But I had already filed wow. a, a complaint at the California um, Physical Therapy Board, which was totally which was completely treated with disregard and, and disrespect. So um, uh, I know that the state of California is involved in my stalking and uh, the crimes that have befallen me, but I'm also hit with directed energy weapons. I get the dream manipulation, the dream interrogation. By the way, the dream interrogation has been a lot about my medical history, have I ever hurt my back before, how I was hurt at work. So that's why either they want me to believe that my employer and the defense and my workers' comp claim is behind this, or I don't know what, because it sure seems like that's what they want me to believe. So I'm, you know, I'm going with it. Although I am a whistleblower and I blew the whistle on a previous employer uh, a few uh, few years ago as well, and he told me that he had friends in high places that could make my life very difficult. And uh, shortly thereafter, bizarre things started happening at my home uh, So and at other places of employment. And that was before I ever got injured at work. But I don't know. I, I, I often say, God, I hope you don't let me die before I know who has done this, who, who is behind all of this garbage. So um, anyway, I, I believe that my targeting is corporate driven. And we that know makes that, sense. Yes. And and we know that uh, the United States is a corporatocracy, so uh, you know it makes sense. And you say that Amazon, uh, what do they do? They offer up some of their employees as part of the uh, of part of the what protocol or the program? Absolutely. Yeah. They actually have uh, volunteer. They have dedicated entire buildings for the purposes of experimenting on their own employees and SIS employees. But absolutely what you were saying um, in terms of California officials and them being involved, that those are exactly the people that would be in the program in place to, to mess with a targeted individual uh, like yourself. So that, that definitely makes sense. You want my supervisor's name and guilty parties? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, there are uh, most of these names are actually available, but I will go ahead and name some of the people in SIS: uh, Zimmerman, um, Brenninger, Venturini. CEO is John Spisak. In what capacity? S P E S A K. 
I'm sorry, S-P-E-S-A-K, John Spisak. And uh, the command and control um, structure is such, there is a Dennis P. Hatton that is a watch commander uh, that I worked under. The command and control structure is such that the uh, supervisor, direct supervisor, is contingent upon your assignments. And this is one of the ways uh, that I think is an interesting point with how they kind of compartmentalize the programs within um, SIS and companies like this so that other people don't find out about it. There is not a company-wide command and control structure. There is a assignment-specific command and control structure so that when you are assigned to a specific assignment, you have an immediate supervisor that you report to, and that's it. And so the one supervisor, for example, might only be overseeing two, three, four, five um, security specialists at a time. And so you have all these little cells within the company that are completely cut off from each other so that the lines of communication and information do not flow between different aspects of the company so that they can um, compartmentalize and keep classification on certain information that they don't want getting out. Uh, so I worked for many different people. I was there. I was assigned to many different assignments. Um, but I, that was a very good question because it, it shows how it is organized. You were talking about how they try to uh, make everybody into being a scumbag, um, so to speak. And um, but most of the most of the people I've spoken with are women. You know, and there's like, you know, women that are beautiful and attractive. There's women that could be your grandmother. Um, and you say they try to make everybody, you know, come up with some stories or whatever. How do they hurt, like, women and grandmothers and kill people's pets? Isn't that horrible? Yeah. Yeah, well, first, thank you for your kind words. And I do want to say that I have heard estimates up, up to uh, 70 75% of targeted individuals are, in fact, women. And it absolutely breaks my heart because... I can't understand the mentality of men or women as well that would actually prey on and torture and abuse uh, a woman, a single woman. It's just horrible. These people have children, and you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, they're tearing families apart. They're they're doing it to children as well. It's it's certainly it's completely out of control. Um, but in terms of smear campaigns, character assassination. Um, what they have is thugs, and uh, perhaps you know there are elements of this that even I'm not aware of. But I am aware, for example, that my life has been threatened. I am aware that people are killed within this program all the time, and they bring in highly trained specialists to do that. They usually have intelligence connections. So in terms of the real dirty work that's done, there are people uh, within the program that are capable of doing that, and they do it because they get paid a lot of money, and they do it because they've been guaranteed by the higher-ups in the program, that they're going to get away from it. What I can speak to is the involvement of defense contractors in general. Um, I have heard, of course, through people like Karen uh, Stewart that Lockheed Martin uh, does employ organized stalkers of their own in 47 of the 50 states. I have not been able to independently verify that with my sources, but it certainly makes sense. Um, what I do know for a fact is, of course, defense contractors are involved in the research and development of the technology going back decades. And uh, if anybody wants to learn more, I would suggest looking up patents into things like microwave auditory effect, the voice to skull, the behavior modification, uh, frequency weapons, directed energy weapons, go back to the work of Nikola Tesla, and uh, look on down the line throughout history to see who the scientists were that were working on this, and then see the connections that they had to certain aspects of the military-industrial complex 
of our of our country. So defense contractors are involved. I I am sorry though I don't have direct knowledge of Lockheed Martin. Are you aware of any antenna arrays that are doing the broadcasting? This is interesting. I'm glad you brought it up. It is one of the most classified aspects of the technology in terms of my knowledge of it and the average security specialist knowledge of it. Uh, you have things broken down basically into a technical department and what, what I would call a personnel department. Personnel handles the actual uh, monitoring of the technology and the gang stalking. You then have the technical side that monitors the infrastructure, the actual building of devices, antennas, cell phones, towers. So I do not have direct knowledge of that. But I do know that it does utilize antennas, radar, and cell phone towers. And I think radar, uh, I know for a fact, is being used for military bases. I know some of the antennas are being uh, camouflage within buildings, other structures. They're, they have entire walls and structures built around them just to hide the existence of the antenna. So you can see the effort that goes into covering up these, the locations of them. And as a result, they're the most classified part of the program. And I do not know any specifics on that other than they're out there and they're everywhere already all over the United States because this system is operational countrywide. You mentioned that the artificial telepathy people are connected to hive mind with remote neural monitoring. That's what we call the process of them uh, hearing our thoughts and looking through our eyes. I want to know what you call it. And my last question is, uh, can you, do you have any documents that you could put online uh, regarding this program um, that we could all access? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Alec. Uh, remote neural monitoring, uh, in terms of the, the uh, terms that I call it, uh, much of it is slang derived from uh, security industry specialists, so it's kind of like a street-level slang that we use for it, hive mind, voice to skull, remote neural uh, monitoring. There's some, some rather coarse terms that we use as well that are very descriptive but not very scientific. Um, but the remote neural monitoring is, is one that is, I think, the, the main feature of it. Uh, that they are able to get the information from people. And so that is the aspect I think that is going to be used uh, very covertly against everyone in the country to read people's thoughts, to see what they're, what they are thinking, and then determine whether or not they're a threat to the power establishment or to the individual motivations of companies or, or local officials or whatever it might be. Also, thank you for the information. I spoke with you earlier and uh, I really appreciate your help on that. Uh, in terms of documents, I do. Uh, I also have people that I am in contact with uh, within the industry, potential allies that are sympathetic to our cause and are behind the scenes waiting uh, for the right moment that are behind the scenes, hoping that the general public will become more aware of this issue and will give them uh, the impetus that they need to start to move behind the scenes to make progress against it. There are a lot of people that are against this program and that support TIs, but they are in highly, highly classified positions. They are threatened if they speak out and they also, of course, have family and friends to think about. So we do have allies there, uh, and I do have documentation, um, and I am planning on releasing it. I do not know when because I'm also planning legal proceedings against the federal government and possibly my former employer, DESC and Amazon, and my lawyer is advising me at this point not to release that, uh, but it, depending on how bad goes, very soon I may be able to do that. I had a question. Do you see yourself as stepping up and testifying for some of the TIs that are gathering evidence to go to court? 
Absolutely, yes. I would be willing to help uh, anyone that is bringing legal proceedings against the program or against the government. That is my main goal in coming forward is to attack this from a legal perspective. And I would be uh, happy to lend my testimony or my efforts to anyone that's pursuing that goal. Okay, one other thing really quick. Are you a victim of V2K? Yes, I am. I am a victim of V2K emotion via the works. I have got a uh, beta version, I believe, of what is going to be rolled out against TIs in the next couple of years. Um, my company was involved in a research development program of kind of the next generation of voice to skull and the frequency weaponry. And because I knew these people, I decided to blow the whistle on them. They gave me uh, the most nasty version of it. Uh, it is highly, highly advanced. It's one of the reasons I've had a lot of problems getting relief myself uh, is because I'm dealing with something that is, uh, I think only the military would, would have and know about uh, in terms of its its advanced state. So yes, I am getting all of it 24 hours a day. Uh, I'm currently homeless. I've tried five other jobs since I resigned from SIS and uh, I'm un under constant torture, surveillance and gang stalking 24 hours a day. Well, what sort of things are you getting V2K? What kind of things are uh, they telling you? That is interesting. Uh, the main one that they repeat all the time is please be quiet in not so uh, nice terms or we're going to kill you. Uh, they tell me that everybody is against me. They tell me uh, all sorts of stuff. One of the people, uh, the lady that mentioned that the state of California uh, was involved with her medical problems where she messed up her back and the voice of skull was telling her that it was her corporation or the, the company she was working for. I hope I get that right. Um, but that's what they do. They beam into people like me's heads um, all sorts of stuff to try to turn people against each other, to turn companies against each other, individuals against each other. And so what they do to me, I think, is very similar to what I've heard from a lot of TIs. They'll turn TIs against their family. They'll turn, turn family members against TIs, for example, and coworkers. And that's what they're doing with me. They're trying to manipulate me. They're trying to turn me against former employees, uh, employers, excuse me, people I used to work with, family members, friends, people I'm meeting online. And it's just a constant 24-7 back and forth. Don't trust this person. Do trust that person. Don't trust this person. Do trust that person. Don't you dare try to work again or we're going to kill you. Don't you dare try to contact this person or we're going to kill you. Uh, don't do this or we're going to uh, slander you and, and smear all sorts of stuff all over the papers. We are um, very disappointed in what you decided to do. Uh, we're going to, they, they have been sending stuff into my dreams as well. It's constant 24-7. And luckily, because of my training, because I know all aspects are technology-induced, and because I have a bit of training in gang stalking as well, my response to it is always, number one, I know who it's coming from. I know who these people are, so I'm not listening to any of it. I go out of my way to judge things for myself and come to my own decisions. And then when it comes to gang stalkers, I just gang stalk them back. I'm only one man out here, but I try to take them on and, and fight fire with fire mm -hmm. and stand my ground and just at least try to maintain the status quo so I don't slip further down into the darkness, so to speak, where they're, they're trying to put me. participating in it.
key characteristic of an extreme harassment episode is that there's no escape, no matter what you do. You might panic and flee. People will follow you everywhere. They'll be in your face no matter where you go. You might check into a hotel to get away from it all. People will check in next door almost immediately, and your neighbors will harass you all night. Another key characteristic is betrayal. People you trusted who didn't previously participate will join in. This is all very memorable. No escape. Everyone's betraying you. You're supposed to internalize that. Step five. Okay, you've been broken in. You're now your own worst enemy. This might be about a year in. You're jumping at your own shadow. What really helps with this whole thing, this illusion that's being maintained, you might be hiding in your residence and only popping out when absolutely necessary, but someone will show up almost immediately. Someone will leave subtle signs of intrusion, even if you dash out just for a few minutes. This is the space invasion phase. Your personal space is being invaded. It directly follows from extreme harassment. You've made changes to your life that should make it much harder for them to get in, but somehow they get in. Depending on your situation, you might get break-ins even when you're asleep. Friends, neighbors, even family members give subtle signs that they're in on it. Maybe a group of men moves in next door or down the street. Space invasion. They're going to extraordinary lengths to get into your face. And much more disturbing stuff, other kinds of space invasions start happening. Customized television programming, electronic harassment, evidence that you're being watched, even in a windowless dark room. Now, somewhere around here, you're going to conclude you've been uniquely singled out. Nobody in the world is getting this kind of attention. It's totally ridiculous. This is the point where many targets are led over the edge, about one to four years in. Because you're seeing this activity around you, and it seems to stem from a run-in with the wrong person, or people just seem to take a disliking to you in your neighborhood, and so on, and they're misusing government resources, and they're in your face. What else could it be? Well, I'm going to tell you. There's another step beyond that in which the meaning of all the previous steps is made evident, but a lot of people going through the program don't see it. I'll be getting to that after I put those steps in context. If you're going through this process and you're still at the point where you're trying to gather license plate numbers or catch people in the act of breaking in or trying to find a lot they can't pick or trying to figure out what group everyone belongs to or trying to learn how they're communicating, I'm going to break the bad news to you. You've been brainwashed. Brainwashed people don't know they've been brainwashed. There's no explanation I can give you that's going to snap you out of it. It's so real. In fact, explaining things in terms of the familiar might actually help cement your brainwashing. The only way I know of to break brainwashed people out of their brainwashing is to confront them with propositions that can't be considered without questioning perceived reality. When you start questioning the world around you, you're on the road to recovery. The first thing I want to do is point out that this whole thing, what I've described so far, is a lot like a magic trick. There's a couple of ways, actually, in which it resembles a magic trick. 
First, appearances can be deceiving. An analogy I like to use is the stage trick where a magician saws his assistant in half, or rather, that's how it appears. You've seen this, right? Well, when you see that kind of magic trick, you don't go running to the authorities to report an attempted murder, do you? Because if you did, you'd be laughed out of the police station. No, you think, oh my, that's so very clever. How did they do that? Maybe when you see a really good magic trick, you'll go running to a friend, someone whose opinion you respect, and ask, how did he do that? Chances are he won't be able to tell you because he's only going off what you're telling him and your senses were deceived. Plus, he's not a professional magician. Now, because you've been exposed to highly deceptive behavior in the context of hostility, you don't see this as entertainment. You're not looking at it as a kind of magic trick. You're assuming that everything is exactly as you perceive it to be, and you're acting on that assumption, which will turn out to be ruinous. Maybe you're running to the authorities to report what you perceive as a fact. I've gotten better at deciphering the magic tricks that are used by our adversaries, but I don't know them all. You might come on the conference calls and ask, how did they do that? Or why are they doing that? There's a chance everyone will say they don't know. They're going off what you're describing to them, and what you're describing is what you've seen with your own eyes, and your eyes have been deceived. To see through a magician's tricks, you have to adopt a particular kind of mindset. That brings me to the second way in which the whole process resembles a magic act. In the steps of the program I've gone through so far, if you've been through those steps, you're probably nodding your head. Oh yes, that's what they did to me too. And that's the trick. In describing those stages, I was focusing on what you were focusing on. This idea that there's an objective reality, which you're watching and reporting on, in which all these things are happening which pertain to you. Your attention has been drawn to these things. I'm encouraging you to look at magic tricks, slates of hand, with a new eye. When a magician is doing something tricky right in front of your face, there's going to be a distraction. One of his hands will be going through complicated motions, for instance. All that showmanship, all the patter, it's intended to keep you focused on distraction while the real trick happens elsewhere. Yeah. You want to look for the real trick and ignore the distraction. Instead of focusing on all the details of your environment, maybe you should pay attention to yourself. How much of this are you doing to yourself? Think about all the stress you've been through. Is the stress causing you to see things around you in a different way? Review the entire program. Instead of focusing on what they've been telling you, you know, that you're guilty of something, or that your actions are hateful or ridiculous, or that lots of people are watching, or that you're in great danger, focus on how you're being manipulated. Look at the messages you're being sent, not individual episodes, but the big picture. Like, let's say you frequently overhear neighbors saying nasty things about you. Rather than focusing on those things, focus on the message. You're being told your neighbor has it in for you. Someone else, the person or organization that's running the whole thing, is sending you that message and messages like it. Those messages are very believable. You wouldn't believe that someone else, a third party, was counterfeiting those messages. It's why the whole brainwashing process is so effective. 
Once you start paying attention to what kinds of provocative messages are being sent to you, you can start resisting the psychological manipulation. Of course, manipulation is generally only effective when it's disguised as something else. Nobody's going to tell you, I'm going to get you to believe this and that and the other thing, and here's how I'm going to do it. They're just going to set out to make you believe those things. You only figure out that you've been deceived later. One way in which you've been fooled, that should be obvious, is the surveillance. You might have been watched long before you were made aware you were being watched. You were deceived that whole time. Here's something else to think about. You've been deceived about other aspects of your ordeal. Like for instance, maybe you think you've deeply offended someone and that's why his friends are all after you. Maybe you really did offend someone, but someone else the third party who's really responsible for the whole thing and was watching all along took advantage of this conflict to pin everything on that person. The things you've seen were intended to be seen. This whole process is meant to be seen. You're being manipulated. Maybe you've seen street theater, obvious performances out in public where people were referring to your private activities. And that's very disturbing or even humiliating because you imagine that everyone else notices the street theater. And so this is like a form of public humiliation. Well, those are obvious performances. You're being told, look at this, we're putting on a show just for you, pay attention. What if you've seen other performances that you didn't recognize as performances because they didn't tell you they were putting on an act? You might think there are vicious smears or rumors circulating about you based on hints that people drop in your presence. But how does this go on for years without you finding out what the rumors are? Something else is going on. These hints that people are sharing with you are part of the performance, an act, a show. Are you starting to get the picture? If you've seen street theater, you've seen a crack in this synthetic reality they're creating for you. There may have been other theatrical episodes and you didn't recognize them as such at the time. But you remember those episodes, and your views were changed as a result of them. Those episodes, totally staged, assisted with your brainwashing. That's why I keep talking about manipulation and messages that are being sent, the meaning that you assign to the strange occurrences around you. And those occurrences are really happening, don't get me wrong. It's largely in your head. You were sent messages, and you internalized those messages. Those messages help brainwash you. Now, the methods that are used to send those messages, those are disturbing. All those people, they have to be in on it. It's so real. How could it be anything other than what you think it is? In the final step of the program, which some subjects never get to or haven't gone to yet, and many of them misinterpret, a much simpler explanation manifests. It's an explanation that looks a lot like mental illness, but it's something else. And keep in mind, all the stuff I've been talking about in the previous steps looks like mental illness too. Virtually every tactic corresponds to some symptom of mental illness. There's a region of the brain corresponding to each symptom, which can malfunction and cause those distorted perceptions. But a real mental illness doesn't hop from region to region of the brain the way this program does. Before I explain the final step and what it means, and go on to explain the tools they use to make all this stuff happen. 
I want to point out that there is no authoritative information on this subject. Any books that are out there are self-published. For instance, one book which is a favorite because it seems to offer vindication blames it all on vigilante gangs hired by corporations. But that book's self-published. The author is allowing you to think he has credentials he doesn't really appear to have. And it's completely lacking in any concrete allegations. It's basically just another tall tale, except you have to pay 20 bucks for it. All the books out there on the subject and related matters are based on hearsay and speculation, or even flat out lies. People believe the lies because they desperately want any kind of vindication. As long as the author seems to have credentials, they'll swallow any story that seems to match what they're going through. Those books are the author's interpretations of this program, their interpretations. This is my interpretation, which is no less authoritative than theirs. Okay, in the final step, you get obvious electronic harassment. This is something that's labeled as electronic harassment because it's something that could only be coming from electromagnetic sources at the speed of light. The feedback is instantaneous, or nearly so. Now, there might have been electronic harassment in earlier stages, and there probably was, but it wasn't made obvious. Or maybe it was obvious, but it seemed like something the people after you, or rather, the people you thought were after you, could get their hands on. And again, there is deception here. Just as in the previous phases, where you got obvious, overt, in-your-face hostility with covert aggression later linked to it, you might get real bombardment with energy weapons. Later, you'll be getting something else, but you'll think it's the energy weapons that were used earlier. At this point, all the pieces are in front of you. You just don't recognize it yet, but it's going to get increasingly obvious. You're going to be made aware that your mind is being read. This is quite shocking when you learn about it. Unfortunately, it seems, you're not allowed to know what's really happening until you're completely broke. There's a reason why everyone complaining about these things is destitute, or nearly so. That's something I'm going to get into a little bit later, when I talk about the purpose of these activities. You're also going to learn about mind-invasive technology. And again, this is something you only learn about on their schedule. You learn it because they're allowing you to know. Now, the tools of electronic harassment you've heard about on the news in the past few years, the non-lethal weapons, those are actually more advanced than mind-invasive technology based on implants, for instance. Experimentation with electronic mind control goes back to the 1950s with civilian researchers. They were doing amazing stuff more than half a century ago. The non-lethal weapons are relatively new. You could say, oh, but there's all kinds of secret stuff the military planners and intelligence agencies don't let us know about. There could be even more advanced stuff out there or the non-lethal weapons might have been around for a much longer time. I'm not going to disagree that the official timelines for the deployment of non-lethal weapon technology are questionable, but then so are the official timelines for the deployment of electronic mind control technology. Someone with the ability to send electrical signals to your brain can pull off a pretty convincing imitation of God. This is an age-old game. People in authority pretending to be much more powerful than they really are, while at the same time holding back their secret edge. What you've discovered, thanks to this program, is their secret edge, the electronic mind control technology that's usable on you and on the people around you.
most of those people that you thought were in on it, even allowing for the fact that you were jumping at your own shadow, let's look at the people who are in your face, they had no idea of the significance of the things they were doing. It was discovered decades ago that electronic mind control test subjects rationalize away evoked actions. The conscious mind invents an explanation for why you did what you just did. You can't know about this except indirectly through coincidences that are created through your own actions. Highly improbable coincidences. Once the mind control technology is on the table, you've got your explanation for the whole thing. There might have been some real hostility or aggression at the beginning, but that was amplified a thousandfold through the use of psychological operations, these manipulative messages I've been talking about in the previous steps, and mind control technology used to make people around you deliver those messages. You're not confronted with hundreds or thousands of hostile people. It's more like a very small number of people who can, in effect, hop into a person's body and make him act out. And that person who acts out, he has no idea that his actions or words are significant to you. That's why they're using so many double meanings or subtle hints. You fly off the handle because you think some guy is hostile to you, but he has no idea why you're mad at him. From his point of view, your erratic behavior is unprovoked. That's a deliberate strategy. Okay, so that's the broad outline of the program. I'll be getting into the tools a little bit later. But first, let me point out, there are things that will happen to a target of this program which don't fit into this framework I've laid out. The whole thing is highly psychological and highly deceptive. But there are things that happen to at least some targets that aren't psychological. As I said earlier, the whole thing might have seemed to grow out of confrontation you had, or it might seem like someone took offense to something you did and got his buddies to go after you. Or it might seem like there was a smear campaign. Well, maybe there was, especially in the beginning. I've heard tales of gunplay in the beginning, of physical assaults. People don't do that stuff just because someone's whispering in their ear. The really rough treatment you're going to find, there's an incentive for it. Money is a typical motivation. It's hard to say where the real thing ends and the purely psychological factors begin. That's a question only you can answer, and you have to reevaluate everything based on what you know now. Learning about this secret world is like recovering from amnesia. You have to rebuild your conclusions from the ground up. Yeah. Also, energy weapon abuse and other kinds of electronic harassment that don't have anything to do with mind control might be used. That's going to depend on the resources available. For instance, I've heard reports from a handful of targets living with military bases close by that suggest infrared spotlights are being shined into their homes, heating everything up. Hmm. I've heard from a rubber Tanzan in Texas who had a neighbor set up a microwave emitter. I've heard from a rubber Tanzan in Texas who had a neighbor set up a microwave emitter in a nearby shed. He knows it was microwaves because he measured them, and there were lots of shorts and electrical fires near his residence attributed to that emitter. But energy weapon abuse doesn't seem to be specifically part of this program. That's just something that can be used, depending on the resources available. If you're experiencing what you think is directed energy weapon torture, and it doesn't seem to be leaving any traces behind, you should be questioning whether things are happening as you think they are. And sometimes, even if it does leave traces behind, 
the laws of physics put some pretty strict boundaries on what can be done with energy weapons. If you've heard of the 95 gigahertz active denial system, look up the CBS video on the subject sometime. You'll see a man blocking this high-tech weapon system with a board of plywood. High-frequency radiation, up to X-rays, is easily blocked. Microwave radiation at intensities powerful enough to cause pain, you should be able to deflect it with plain old aluminum foil. And here's a fun experiment. Put a crumpled piece of aluminum foil in your microwave oven and it's set on high. Notice the sparks and the arcing. You should see those kinds of sparks or arcing if you're holding up a piece of aluminum foil in the path of an alleged microwave energy weapon. Aluminum foil can theoretically block radio wave frequencies down to one megahertz. Even stainless steel window screens can block radio wave frequencies as low as a few megahertz and into the tens of gigahertz on the, on the high end. I don't consider low frequency radio signals to be a credible explanation for what targets are complaining about. Okay, now for the tools. There are four basic kinds of tools used to further the goals of this program. There's a mind control, mind reading infrastructure, a reasonably small number of operatives, a collection of standardized tricks, and a disinformation ecosystem, which is there to mislead you as well as discredit you. First, this infrastructure. There's no reliable or authoritative information about how it works. There's just layers upon layers of disinformation, speculation, and wishful thinking. Without saying how it works, I'm just going to point out that it seems to be usable on many people, not just the targets complaining about it. But it's a big stretch to say that it's usable on everyone. You might be in a heavily controlled area. You might have been moving around to get away, and without realizing it, you were herded into other heavily controlled areas. You're not going to get me to say that it's usable on everyone. So the infrastructure is used on people around you to get them to act out to help them give signs they're in on it, to herd people into your area so it looks like there's always someone watching you. Keep in mind, this isn't the only thing the mind control infrastructure is used for. Just the fact that it exists should be creepy enough without the rumored applications. In case you haven't figured this out yet, you've stumbled across something much bigger than just a few losers harassing you. Okay. There's also going to be stuff that happens which can't be pinned on mind control. Break-ins that happen when you're not around, for example. This can be pulled off with a small number of operatives. They've got other things to do. You're probably just one of the many jobs in the area. And those operatives probably aren't around for long. Just long enough to introduce you to the notion that people are actively messing with your property when you're not looking. That really helps out with some of the tricks that are pulled on you later. Next, there's a collection of standardized tricks. I can go over them. I could spend a couple of hours listing tricks, but as I was saying earlier, you have to adopt a mindset. Good tricks will often involve a distraction. You have to look beyond the distraction. This is hard, but it gets easier when you're aware you're being tricked. But you also have to be aware that mind control technology adds a new dimension to the tricks used. I've gone over many tricks of this nature on a previous podcast, the Slate of Mind podcast. Let me rehash a couple of them now. Going back to this concept of operatives moving in nearby, 
Remember, I said one purpose of the operatives is to teach you that people are breaking into your place. So when you wake up one morning and you find evidence someone's gotten in during the night, let's say a couple of objects have been moved around, you're going to attribute that to break-in artists. There are other possibilities, such as the objects had already been moved before you went to sleep for the night and you didn't notice because it was dark. But let's say you've ruled that out. Maybe you were mind-controlled to move the objects yourself in your sleep. But you attribute it to break-in artists who are somehow able to climb into top-story windows in the middle of the night in a residential neighborhood without anyone noticing. It's baffling to you, and it sounds crazy to others. Another one, a big category of tricks, is one that I call causality inversion. You do something, and there seems to be a major reaction to it, on television, for example. And you're thinking, my God, the amount of manpower devoted to this must be huge. They have connections everywhere. But no, your handler had advanced knowledge of this major event and made you act it out in advance using mind control technology. Another one that I just dissected recently, this idea of energy weapons that seem to act like lasers, burning the surface of the skin with precise placement, but can somehow penetrate through walls in a windowless room and can track you even if you try to escape. Now, this shouldn't be possible, but there's a couple of explanations. The first is that you were actually burned some time ago, painlessly, and then mind control technology was used to give you pain in that area of the body. The second possibility, do you know how secure your living quarters are? Are you sure nobody's getting to you at night? Because what could be happening is, maybe there's some metal granules or particles that have been injected under your skin where the burns are going to appear. Then they just send a relatively low-powered microwave beam into your residence, which the rest of your body doesn't really feel. But it superheats the surface of those metal particles. Read up on the skin effect. So the microwave beam goes through the wall and hits a wide swath of your body, only superheating the portion of your body where those metal particles are, burning your skin in a precise pattern. Okay. So those are some tricks. There are many more, far too many to cover on this call. The fourth tool used in this program is a disinformation ecosystem. It's there to mislead you and to mislead the public about you. It's enormous. I can't debunk all the disinformation you're going to confront on this call or even in my lifetime. That's because one of the biggest sources of disinformation is you. Disinformation spreads because it gives people something they want. What targets want is official acknowledgement of their problems, vindication. So they're going to spread anything that looks like an official source, anything written by someone who looks like an authority, anything that looks like it's talking about their problems in a credible way. There is no reliable authoritative information about these matters. You might think there is, but no. All that's out there is speculation, flat-out fabrication, and the testimony of targets like you who have gotten their information from the least trustworthy people in the world, their handlers. You're going to see targets used to scapegoat other groups, to pin the blame for these operations on other groups. You're going to run to targets who are convinced of supernatural forces or ETs that are responsible. 
It's all based on what they've been allowed to see with confirmation provided by other people who have been hoodwinked. Now, the public in the past was occasionally allowed a glimpse into the ecosystem. These days, it's more than occasionally. It's being put in their faces. It's been turned into a form of entertainment, profitable entertainment. It's a disinformation ecosystem. It's colossal. And the only way you're going to disengage from it is to adopt this mindset that I keep harping on. Understand that deception is the name of the game. Look beyond the distractions. Don't let yourself be put to work on their edifice of disinformation. If they can't profit from using you this way, they're going to let you go. Targets play another part in this ecosystem, an important part. They're kept apart on purpose. They're forced to communicate verbally, and words are misleading. Most people don't look for the truth beyond the words. People on the calls toss around phrases like energy weapons, but when you dig in to find out what they're really talking about, a lot of the time they're talking about something else. Targets are used to terrorize other targets. Earlier, I said energy weapons and other kinds of physical assaults don't seem to be specifically part of this program. It seems to be mostly about psychology and mind control. But maybe there are targets who are in this program and some other program at the same time. Or maybe part of the grand strategy is to single out a few targets for special treatment, hard targeting. Those heavily targeted people are driven onto the calls to terrify other targets. It's like 9-11. 3,000 people were killed in a very visible way to terrorize and control 300 million people. Terrorism is a strategy that happens to work. All right, coming into the final stretch here, what is the purpose of this program? I've already said that it's a takedown program, but why are they taking you down? Well, if you've already been through a couple of years of this, maybe it started with an argument at a bar. But you've probably figured out by now that the hundreds of people following you, the electronic harassment happening for years and in several states, that doesn't have anything to do with a bar argument. Maybe you were led to believe it was about money. That's pretty credible at first, especially if it's a large sum of money. But at some point you have to realize, okay, there's no possible payoff that would get all those people watching you and following you for years on end. Something else is going on. The stories you were led to believe about why you were targeted are probably just as much of a lie as everything else you've been told. But if you believe those stories, that really helps with the discreditation process, especially if you're saying it's about an invention or research you were doing or your art. Trying to answer the question, why me, will lead you to an answer that sounds like mental illness, delusions of grandeur. Now, I'm aware of some targets who really are special and really have to be kept down using this takedown program. But I think those cases are an exception. To get an answer, you have to look at the whole system. The purpose of a system is what the system does. When you look at the efforts that go into demonizing targets of mind control abuse, you've even got Rachel Maddow putting on a tinfoil hat on a major network to portray an opponent as mentally ill you start getting an idea. There's an old saying, follow the money. In today's world, that saying should be updated. 
follow the ridicule. Distraction, disinformation, that's the way their game works. They build straw men with one hand and demolish them with the other to distract people from the real issues. The overall purpose of the program, and remember, it is only one program that's used against a relatively small number of people, is to make anyone trying to expose operations pertaining to mind control in the U.S. look ridiculous. They want you on the conference calls. They want you sharing stories with each other. They want you to rush to the public with misleading or outlandish explanations of these problems. That's the real purpose of the program. This isn't a grand unified theory of targeting. I just want to make that clear. This is one specific program that many regulars on my call have been through. Some of those regulars have been through other programs. Some of them are being taken down for nefarious purposes. If you've been through the program, the entire thing or nearly the entire thing, now you know the truth about what can be done with electronic mind control. And now you know where they get their power from their ability to grab your attention. If you're still struggling with neighborhood harassers or friends and family members who seem to be in on it, just keep in mind, things aren't necessarily as they seem. I mean, he speaks like he's an authority. Welcome to Secrets of the Elite. I am Lindsay Williams, your host. Mm -hmm. I have waited for 35 years to make this DVD presentation. The people who have been friends to me over the years and have given me information, whom I refer to as the elite, are now retired in their 70s and 80s. I have withheld this information for these years out of respect for these people who have been willing to risk oftentimes uh, their position or their retirement in order to be able to tell me things. Let me say, if I may, emphatically, there positively is a group of people on the face of the earth who control the world. Mm. Nothing ever happens in Washington by chance. Nothing takes place in the financial world by happen so. Men behind closed doors have decided everything that's going to happen. And my lifestyle and yours oftentimes is controlled by these people by what they do. These elite of the world know what's going to happen tomorrow morning. Mm. There's no question in their minds. Well, let me begin back where it began with me. I had been the pastor of a church for 12 years. I went to Alaska, and after arriving there, I found they were building the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline. I went to Alaska Pipeline Service Company, and I said, don't you need a chaplain on the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline? Well, they said, we don't know what to do with you. Well, finally, they did, and gave me the Prudhoe Bay area, and from there down to Galbraith Lake, seven work camps. And they just said, go and see what you can do. I did. And a few months later, Mr. R.H. King, personnel relations man with Alaska, came to me and he said, Chaplain, you're saving us thousands of dollars of counseling fees. We aren't having to pay your religious denomination is paying your salary. We would like to offer you executive status. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, go any place you'd like, see anything you'd like to see. And 
when you happen to be at Prudhoe Bay on the weekends, you're welcome to stay at Arco Base, if you wish, in executive dorms. And he said, we would like to invite you to sit in our board meetings in an advisory capacity in order to help the relationship between management and labor. I had not the slightest idea what I was getting into. For three years' time, I sat with, lived in the same dorms with, was across the dinner table from, rode in the vehicles with, and day after day were in the presence of people that the average person never gets to meet. People who control the world. They literally do. Uh, if someone had asked me before I went to the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline, Chaplin, do you believe there's a group of people on the face of the earth who control the world? I would have laughed at them. And I would have said, who are you, a John Bircher? If someone had asked me that question three years later, after I had lived with these people, do you believe there's a group of people who tell the president what to do, dictate to Congress what bills to pass, tell OPEC on any given day what they're going to give them for a barrel of oil, I would have said, not only do I believe it, I sat and listened to them talk about it. So now you can understand why I can so emphatically make the statement there positively is a group of people on the face of the earth who control the world. I remember one morning I walked into Arco Base and Mr. Ken Prom was sitting there. And he greeted me and said, Chaplain, come on over. I'd like to introduce you to someone. I walked over to the breakfast table and he said, Chaplain, this is Mr. So-and-so. And he called him my name and said, he's the International Secretary Treasurer of Exxon Corporation. I tried my best over those three years time to try to comprehend these people, their mindset. Now, keep in mind, I had been a pastor for all those years, had had many opportunities of counseling with every type of a situation imaginable, had graduated with a bachelor's degree, so I had some idea of how to work with people from my schooling years, and now I had the opportunity to understand people that the average person never comes in contact with. Um, I tried to figure out how they think, what their lifestyles are. And I honestly believe, as I look back over those years now, that the reason I was there was the providence of God. Uh, th there is no way that a little insignificant unknown missionary flying airplanes out in the bush of Alaska could have ever lived with the elite for three years' time except by the providence of God. And there is no way that I could possibly be here today on this DVD trying to explain to you the things that you need to know in order to be able to overcome the new world order except by the providence of God. I think you're viewing this DVD by God's providence. And the things that I say, I hope will be a great help to you in your life so that you can keep food on your dinner table, can overcome the elite and the new world order. And you can, if you understand their mindset, but only if you understand the thought patterns, the mindset of these people. I have written numerous books. In fact, I've written six books. My first book was The Energy Nine Crisis. And 
I wrote it for the purpose of helping you understand how these people think and, and how they live uh, and what how to comprehend them. There was a second book entitled To Seduce a Nation. And all of these books are written for the purpose of helping you understand the elite of the world. Now, these books were out of print as of about two years ago. And then so many people said, Chaplain, please, you must help us. We're facing a whole different world of a new world order today. We need to understand the thought patterns and the mindset of these people. So I did. We have it, and you can get it. Uh, and even though it went out of print a few years ago, you can go to Amazon Kindle, and you can download the book, The Energy Non-Crisis, and To Seduce a Nation. Go to Amazon Kindle, and you can have those books. And I hope that you will read some chapters that I'm relating to on today. I look back over these years, and from 1980, my book, The Energy Non-Crisis, the book was published in 1980, uh, some very unusual things happened. After I wrote the manuscript for the Energy Non-Crisis, I didn't know how to, what to do with the book. I had never taken journalism in high school or college. I had not the slightest idea how to get a book published and to distribute it. And so I thought, well, I'll give it to publishers. Well, I, I sent the manuscript to every leading publishing house in America and said, would you publish my book? And here's the manuscript. Every, every, every publishing house, Everyone wrote back and said, Chaplin, it's too hot. You'll get sued. We can't handle it. Now, today mm. that would not be true. Uh, my book, Energy Non-Crisis, was not controversial at all today. It would not be compared to what it was 35 years ago. But in 1980, uh, then I said, okay, what do I do with it? And I'll never forget, I was in Denver, Colorado. Beth Eaton Baptist Church, and a pastor, a wonderful, godly gentleman, uh, said to me, Chaplain, you must publish that manuscript. He said, the world has got to know what you have lived and your experiences. He said, okay, I'll help you. Dr. Earl Madison, never forget him. He's going on to be with the Lord now. And he said, uh, Chaplain, I'll help you put out the first 500 books. Well, we did. I never thought they would sell. They were gone in days. Then we published 5,000 books. They were gone in a few weeks. Then we published 10,000 books. They were gone in a few months. Within a year or so, it became a bestseller. People were hungry for the truth. They wanted to know what really is going on out there. And the book told them. At that point, uh, I began getting invitations from speaking engagements all across the country, I mean, day after day. And finally, the mission board that I happened to be with at the time said, Chaplain, you can't publish a secular book and, and still be a missionary in Alaska. I said, no problem. I'll gladly resign. After all, there was a whole world out there to tell about what was going on and to tell about Jesus Christ. So I chose that, uh, left Alaska. And began traveling. I have spoken in every state in America with the exception of Maine. I wish somebody would invite me to Maine for a speaking engagement. I take it just to be able to say that I've been to all 50 states, had the opportunity to travel to Australia, New Zealand, many countries of the world, 
people are hungry for the truth. And for a person who lived that story, uh, someone said to me the other day, well, Chaplain, don't you have any trouble uh, giving a presentation like I'm giving right now, for instance, on this DVD? And I said, no. The difference in this presentation and the presentation that just a speaker would give at a convention would be he looked in books, he read newspapers, he, he got current events, and he put together a presentation. What you're hearing today is what I lived. I was there. I saw them. I heard them. I ate across the dinner table from them. I lived in the dorms with them. The most asked question over the past 35 years, any radio talk show I've been on, television show, speaking engagement, public, is chaplain, please tell us something about the elite. Well, I will. And this is where I began. First of all, a few years ago, someone said, where do the elite live? Well, you need to know this because if you're going to prepare for the new world order, you need to know how the elite have prepared. So I called one of my elitist friends and I said, where's Mr. So-and-so? I knew him years ago, but I didn't know where he is now. And he told me. And then I said, well, where is this gentleman? Then I said, where's that gentleman? And I called a number of the people that I had their phone numbers, whom I called the elite, the super wealthy, the people who behind closed doors determine your life before you ever know what's going to happen to you. And I said, uh, I'd like to know, where do you live? You know what I found out? Not a single elitist whom I would call the super wealthy, the people who are in the controlling powers of the world, not a single one of them have their primary residence in a metropolitan area. Isn't that amazing? They know something. And I hope you're getting the information now also. They all, oh yeah, they may have their penthouses in New York and Washington, but their primary residents, every one of them, live in a rural area. But my next statement is going to surprise you. The elitists are not survivalists. Now you say, but Chaplain, if the elite know what's going to happen, they understand what tomorrow is going to bring, and it could be catastrophic events, then why haven't they made preparations for survival? Oh, <laughs> you see, since they know what's going to happen tomorrow, they know tomorrow how to do what's necessary to do, where if you wait until after the currency has already collapsed, or you wait until after some uh, someone has bombed a few more, uh, like they did in, oh, I should have say, flown airplanes as they did in 9-11. You see, you wait until after the fact because you don't know in advance what's going to happen. The elite know ahead of town exactly what's going to take place, and therefore they don't have to do what you and I have to do in the way of making preparations for these things. Have you ever wondered why so many of the elitists, and I'll name two at this point, by the way, uh, have you ever wondered why they live to a ripe old age? Uh, 
one of the elite of the elite would be George Herbert Bush, Daddy Bush. Uh, and another one, if I could name them, would be Mr. Henry Kissinger. They're in their 80s, still healthy. Why do those men live to be such, uh, at such an age? They know some things you don't know, but some things I'm going to tell you today, you will need to view all of these DVDs because some things may be more important to you toward the end than they are now. As a result, I have chosen four people to help me with this presentation. I knew that it would take some professionals in different fields in order to do it. The Lord led us to one gentleman by the name of Tom Filer. He's a Wall Street insider. He could walk out the front door of his office on any given day when he was on Wall Street and look up at the Twin Towers before they were destroyed. Some of the things that Mr. Fowler is going to say to you, you'll, be, you'll find them fascinating. You'll have to concentrate. I mean, he, he gives a, 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 an approach such as I'm giving, except he dealt with the insiders from one source. I dealt with them from another standpoint. Then I chose Pastor David Bowen. Uh, he was a Hollywood playwright at one time. And as you know, Hollywood is their perversion, and the national liberal media is their mouthpiece. You've probably heard me say that on radio shows. And he dealt with them from that standpoint. Uh, you're going to find what he has to say very fascinating. Mark Johnson, he's going to deal with a subject that I have never heard a definition of that I was satisfied with. You must hear about derivatives. A derivative could, at any point that they wish to pull the plug, bring the entire financial system, both Europe, America, the, the Middle East, I, I, I care not what part of the world it is, the Orient, it could bring the entire world to a collapse tomorrow morning if and when they're ready for it to. Maybe some have never even heard of derivatives, but you're going to hear them now. Then Rodney Ballard, you've seen him before with me in a DVD series. You will hear what he has to say. In 1980, when my book, The Energy Non-Crisis, came out, and, and I say this very modestly, and I say it to God's glory, not to mine, because here I was, just a little lowly missionary, flying airplanes out in the bush of Alaska. I became famous overnight. I, I'm not a person that enjoys the limelight. Uh, but I, I gained renown that took place very rapidly. I, I at times from 1980 to about 1985, I would do two and three radio shows per day. People were hungry to know about the energy crisis and how much crude oil we have. Uh, I averaged crisscrossing America from East Coast to West Coast on the average of every other week by aircraft, commercial. Um, I was speaking day after day in cities all across this land. We were having marvelous audiences. It wasn't unusual back in those days. Can't do it today, of course. The internet, people, that's about the thing they pay most of their attention to. But back in those days, they would come out to a, a rally. And it wasn't unusual to get 300, 500 people uh, in, in small towns, in big cities, wherever it may be. 
We had as many as 10,000 people. The largest rally we ever had was in the Salt Dome in Salt Lake City. And because of this renown, there were some people who were watching me, and I didn't know they were there. You never know who's in your audiences. And a group came to me one day, and they said, Chaplain, we would like you to help us. Uh, I didn't have the slightest idea. I knew they were looked like businessmen. They were well-dressed. They were well-spoken. And they said, and you need to understand this expression, I think, that they used back in those days. Uh, Chaplain, we would like you to help us get some people out to our seminars. And I said, well, what kind of seminars are you speaking of? Now, keep in mind, they'd been in my audiences. They were seeing the number of people that were there. And they said, would you come in contact with a lot of people? They said, we have teaching seminars on the lifestyle and the methods of the elite. Well, I said, that's interesting. I lived with them for three years. And I have the personal phone number for a few of them. I wonder if what you're seeing or what you are saying and what I saw are the same. He said, well, here's what we'd like to do. We, whenever you find people in your seminars that you think might be interested in being trained in the secrets of the elite, uh, would you be willing to introduce them to us? I said, well, first of all, I have to find out what you're teaching. So they said, okay, uh, we will buy your airline ticket. We'll pay all of your expenses to our resort in the Bahamas, and we'd like you to come out and see. I was amazed. I did. I took them up on the offer. I've never been afraid to go places and meet people. And so I did. Beautiful. Private beach. Oh, you, you've never seen such facilities, such food. And I stayed there for a week, and I heard some of the most renowned speakers that you could possibly imagine explaining the insides, the, the inner workings of the social elite, how they do what they do. I have never told this story before, and, and I must admit to you that I haven't told it because, not of fear, but out of respect for my elitist friends who are now retired in their 70s and 80s, and I felt that I should only wait until these men had gotten to the place that they could say what one said to me recently. As many of you know, one of my elitist friends passed away a year ago. Some of you have heard me give his name on radio shows. And before he died, he basically said to me, he said, Chaplain, I'm too old to care. Just go ahead and tell the world everything. Well, at that point, I decided I would. And I have told some things. But there are many things I have never told until today that you've never heard until this DVD series. And the things that I saw these people teaching in these seminars at this fabulously beautiful resort in the Bahamas was exactly what I had heard the elite talking about. The, the very things that they said they would do, you see, they make the laws. There's not a single bill that goes before Congress that is not written by the elite. They know what's 
seldom does a congressman ever read an entire bill. Practically never does a president of the United States of America ever read a bill that's goes before Congress. And he signs it. And the congressman signed it. Who wrote it? I know who wrote it. I heard them talking about these things. When they were talking about what the elite do and, and, and how they act. And, and I was fascinated. And so I told these people, I said, yes. Uh, I'll be glad to do that for you. I said, I know some people that need to understand the inner workings of the elite, and I want to know myself. And so they said, okay, if you'll be willing to recommend people of class and quality that you think could understand these things and it would be helpful to them, we'll be glad to pay all expenses for you every other month to come out and be with us at our seminar in the fabulously beautiful Bahamas. And I did. For about two years, every other month, I spent a week at their resort. I remember one day, the airline strip, or the aircraft strip, that was right close to the resort. I happened to have gotten off the plane that I had flown out in commercially, and uh, not many airplanes landed on a strip like that. It was very private. And all of a sudden, a 727 Boeing, aircraft flew in, large jet, and, and I, I waited to see who was getting out, and the gentleman who was boxing the uh, seminar that week happened to be standing beside me, and he said, you know who those men are? Uh, two of them. Here, this big 727 jet, now like you fly on when you fly with commercial airliners, and the side door hydraulically went down, and he said, Orange Corning are the large corporations of America. And two of their executives got out of the aircraft. You see, the secrets of the elite are known by every congressman. The secrets of the elite are known by federal judges. The secrets of the elite are known by a few lawyers, but you don't know them. They don't want you to know them. They train their young elites as to their thought patterns and their mindset and how they should do things. And as soon as a person arrives in Washington in Congress, I'm going to tell you some of the things they're taught. And you're going to find some very surprising things in the course of all of this. Every president of the United States of America is briefed on these things. And very soon they realize where they stand. I, I'll give you a statement. You can find this one on the internet for yourself. This statement was made by Lloyd Blankenfein. He is the boss at Goldman Sachs. And this uh, was made, the statement was made to the Sunday Times of London, England. And he said, bankers do God's work. Did you catch that? This man said to the London Times, Sunday Times, bankers do God's work. These people think that they have a right to do what they're doing. They are fully convinced that you and I are dumb, 
stupid, don't understand what they're doing, and most people don't. And, and that's really one of the reasons I'm producing this DVD series, because I don't want you to be ignorant of what the elite are doing. I want you to be knowledgeable of what's happening. And the only way that you will overcome the new world order is to be knowledgeable as to how they carry on everything that they do. You might call this a mini college education in, in some fashions. It was 1976. We had finished the service at Arco Base that night. And the men moved out of the way, and for some reason, uh, the senior executive on duty that week uh, had attended service and was sitting with us, I'll never forget, in the movie hall of all places at Arco Base. And we just sat there and talked a few minutes. I guess he wasn't too busy that evening. And in the course of the conversation, he said something. He said, AT&T is going to be declared a monopoly. And uh, wait a minute. Now, think back, folks. 1976, there was only one telephone company in America. It was American Telephone and Telegraph. If you wanted a phone, if you wanted communications, if you wanted long distance, you went to AT&T. There was no other. Now, how did he know it was going to declare, declare, declare the monopoly? It had already been decided behind closed doors. He already knew that Congress would do exactly what they wanted and would declare it a monopoly. Not only that, but they had a reason. The elite wanted to declare AT&T a monopoly. After all, AT&T had been in existence as long as Ma Bell had been around, and they didn't need the elite's money anymore. They were well-financed. Uh, they weren't borrowing. And the elite don't make money when companies don't have to borrow money from them. They declared, and you'll find this in my book, The Energy Nine Crisis, by the way. Please go to Amazon Kindle and get the book. You'll see it for yourself. It was recorded in 1980, and I wrote the book. Before AT&T was ever declared a monopoly, they knew it, knew what was going to happen. And why did they do it? Because when AT&T was declared a monopoly, that meant that other companies, Sprint, uh, Horizon, all these companies would spring up in their place, and how does a new company start? They borrow money from the elite. So they wanted AT&T declared a monopoly, so the elite could turn around and lend money to all of these new companies that would get going because AT&T didn't need them anymore. This is just an idea of how the elite bring about their control factor. 1983, I heard when I was at the meetings in the Bahamas, I heard them talking about something that you didn't hear until just the last year or two. Free trade outsourcing. Those seminars in the Bahamas that I was attending, already back in those days, they were training the young elite to take the industry from America to China and India and Mexico, moving it out of this country, taking away your jobs. And already in those days, I was hearing them talking about free trade, outsourcing, before you ever knew what the business was all about. Why did they want to do this? There's a reason. Oh, I hope this will anger you to no end. The elite knew that they had to take their industry abroad. Why? Well, you just heard from the Wall Street insider. 
You, you're going to hear about other facets of how Congress makes money. It all boils down to this. Let's move our factory to China. Now, we'll make our fortune there in China. Then what do we do with that? If we bring it back into America, it falls under the rules of, well, you know the story. So they don't do it. Where do they take that? This was one of the things that was so fascinating in these seminars that I attended. Where do the elite take their money? Well, they moved industry abroad intentionally. Oh, I know they could produce it cheaper in China than they can in America, but what's the real reason behind it all? It's again a matter of control, control of the funds that they were making out there. And where do they put it? Now, if you are super wealthy, you take your money to Liechtenstein. You probably never heard that name. Uh, if you are a little bit less than super wealthy, you take your money to the Isle of Man. And all this was taught in these seminars, where you take your money according to how many millions or billions that you might have. If you are a little less down the line than Liechtenstein and the Isle of Man, you take it to Belize and you hide it away. And then if you are in the $100,000 range up to a million dollar range, you go to the Turks Islands or well, then you could go to the Cayman Islands if you're 100 to 200,000 or maybe a million. And it all was determined by how wealthy you were as to where you hid your money outside of the United States of America. And industry knew if they moved their plants abroad that their super wealthy could become super wealthier by making their wealth there. And the young elite were being taught this way back in those days. You ask about the lifestyle of the young elite or the elite themselves. They're human. Well, I know they think they're God, but they're really only human. And as a result, uh, you, you can see why the, the government officials and others fall for the things that the elite are telling them. Federal Reserve was produced for the, for the sake of the elite. The World Bank and the IMF manage money according to the way that the elite want them to. And of course, you know who the two biggest elitists in the country are. How do they dress? Well, we'll get down to the nitty gritty of the elite. Not shabby. I don't think I ever saw an elite dressed just haphazardly. I, I would use one expression if I could, and you and I need to know this expression also. Look the part. Whatever you want to be, look that part. In fact, my family, my wife, my son, and I, when we travel on aircraft, we always dress in a suit with a shirt and tie. Uh, we dress, why? We never fail to get good service. Dress the part. Look the part. Whatever you want to be, look that way. The elite, that's exactly the way they look, the way they act, very professional. I never saw one drunk. I very seldom ever saw one smoke a cigarette. There are some things about the elite that you'll find very interesting. And I hope these simple things about the elite will help you. 
I learned them as they taught them to me. And I think they can be of help to you. Let me begin with what I saw in those seminars out in the Bahamas and what I heard. The younger elite are chosen. Uh, Mr. Clinton was chosen very early in life. Uh, people that you see in Washington and hear their names right now, uh, these people are chosen from their college years and younger, and they are taught in these seminars and classes how to enslave the masses. I hope you caught that word. You heard me correctly. They are taught how to enslave the masses. Let me try to explain. I learned many things about the elite. And one of the first things I learned was to listen to their buzzwords. Probably the next most important thing, and by the way, let me pause here long enough to say, any movie that comes out of Hollywood, uh, any uh, liberal news media, any program that I might watch on any given afternoon, I can pick out buzzwords. I have tuned my mind and my ear over 35 years uh, to listening to what these people have to say. And things that the average person would probably never pick up on, immediately they stand out in my mind. The elite, the second thing I learned, most important thing about the elite, they have a code of ethics. <laughs> now, I know this sounds strange, and especially when it's coming from a man who's been a minister of the gospel for 55 years, but the elite do have a code of ethics. Now, their code of ethics is quite different than your code of ethics and my code of ethics. My code of ethics is the Word of God, the Bible. My Savior is Jesus Christ. And everything that I do in life revolves around obedience to the Word of God, if at all possible. And I have to overcome the flesh, as everyone else does, in order to do that. But the elite have a code of ethics also. Their code of ethics, one of the facets of their code of ethics is they must tell you everything they're going to do before they do it. You heard me correctly. They will tell you through a Hollywood movie. They will tell you through buzzwords. They will tell you through expressions that you may hear on the national media. But if you know how to tune your ear to listen to what the elite are saying, you will know everything that's going to take place tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, if you know how to listen to what they're telling you. Many of you remember years ago, George Herbert Bush. Uh, remember, he had been the head of the CIA, and then he was sitting as ambassador to China. And then he came back to America and was vice president under Mr. Reagan, and then he became the president of the United States of America. And he coined an expression later entitled, New World Order. Did I understand what he was saying back then? No. I do today, <laughs> you do too, because it is influencing your life. Did he know what he was saying? Did his elitist friends know what he was telling them? You better believe it. 
they knew 10 years and 20 years down the line. He used to use another expression entitled hours and points of light. Did that mean anything to you? Didn't to me. Does it today? You better believe it. The elite must tell you what they're going to do before they do it. Now, let me give you an everyday one that maybe you've thought of and maybe you've never thought about. Social security. Did you catch it? They did. In fact, when the social security system was put in by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, did he know what he was doing? He was the first socialist president of the United States of America. Did he know what social security was? Come on now, what is socialism? Socialism is the exact opposite of freedom. Socialism is, is, your, is your formation of, of a socialistic communistic system. Is America a socialistic country? No. We are a constitutional republic, and we, the people, tell the government what to do. The government doesn't tell us what to do. We are supposed to be telling the government what to do. Now, what, did, what, what word did they use there? They were telling you, and they were telling me, many, many years ago, where they were headed, did anybody pick up on it? Oh, we fell for it, didn't we? Well, you might have. I didn't. No, I won't be their slave. You see, I learned something out there in those seminars in the Bahamas. There young elitists in training are taught to make slaves out of you and me, and they know what they're doing. It is not done by chance. It's done by design, and everything that's happening today is being done by their hand-trained elitists who went to seminars such as I was allowed to go to. Oh, sure. You should have seen those places where we were. Beautiful private beaches where they could play with their girlfriends. The most marvelous foods you could imagine just caught out of the ocean. Everything was upbeat, rich. They trained them well as to what lifestyle they should live and how they should live that lifestyle while you and the taxpayers paid for it. They knew exactly what they were doing. I didn't fall for their line when I heard Social Security. I'm going to admit to you, I am 76 years of age now. I have never accepted a Social Security check. I have never gotten a penny from the federal government that I didn't send them the check back. You heard me correctly. I have gotten some checks from the government. I sent them everyone back. Signed with a note saying, keep your dirty, filthy paper. I'm free. I'm we the people. I'll tell you what to do. You're not going to socialize me. I've never accepted a penny from Social Security. I've never accepted a penny from Medicare or Medicaid. I'll take care. The Lord will take care of me, and he'll take care of you, too. And if you will... You must not allow yourself to be enslaved by the elite. They have been taught the methods of enslavement. 
I know. I sat and listened to them train the young elitist. I want to give you another expression. Social studies. Oh, your children brought home their social studies book from the classroom, didn't they? Did you catch it? Now, I'm training you in the buzzwords of the elite right now. I hope you understand what I'm doing. I'm trying to help you think. Social studies. What was it years ago when I was a boy and I was in school? What did they call it? They called it history. What is it today? It's social studies. Did you get it? The elite were telling you something. Did it register? They want you to be one world. No more United States of America. No more Constitution. No more Republic. You can't be independent anymore. You've got to fall into line with the new world order and the United Nations. And don't you dare try to be we the people anymore. We're going to make you we the sheeple. I have a word for them. I have no intentions in being a sheep in the hands of the elite. I learned their thought patterns and their ways early in life. And when they put in social studies in school, I said, oh, people, I hope you understand what they've done to you. And they told you what they were doing. Did you get it? They changed the word from history to social studies, socialism. The elite wrote the textbooks, and they're training your children in the public schools. I homeschool my children. I taught them the difference between socialism and social studies and true history. Are you getting the words? Are you understanding what they're doing to you? The first communist president of the United States of America was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Social security. Social programs of every type. The elite are taking away your constitutional republic. And in its place, they've given you a democracy. You ask any politician today, what form of government is the United States of America? What does he say? A democracy. I asked one the other day, or I should say a while back in a public meeting where I was, and right here, right from our state. And I said, what form of government do we have? And he said, a democracy. No, you don't have a democracy in the United States of America. You find anywhere in the Constitution of the United States of America that ever says we're a democracy. Read Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, and you'll find out that it says every, the federal government may guarantee, must guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. They have taken away your republic. They've given you a democracy, and it was done beginning many, many years ago. The, the elite have taken away your currency. I hope you realize what they've done to you. You don't have a quarter anymore. You have a pointy piece of metal. What was a quarter? It was one-fourth of a dollar. What was a dollar? 
one ounce of silver. What are they giving you today? A funny piece of phony metal that you look around the outside and you see a circle. Didn't you get the message when they put that piece of phony stuff out there? Did, did it not register with you that they had taken away your silver from your quarter, from your half dollar? And then you couldn't go to the bank and get the silver dollar anymore. Why? They had to take away the value. And they had to give you a piece of paper in exchange. A piece of paper? What good's that paper? It, it doesn't even have redeemable anymore by silver and gold. Now it's no more than a Federal Reserve note. And what is the Federal Reserve? It's not either the agency of the government of the United States of America. It is a private corporation that has literally taken over our currency in this country. The elite have taken away your God. Yes, you heard me correctly. They had to. You've heard me tell this before on radio shows and in other DVD presentations I've made. But they have a plan to remove the God who made America great. And the only way that they could bring in their new world order was to remove the God that had made America great from our society. They took the Ten Commandments off the courthouse steps. They removed the Bible from the classroom. They had to remove righteousness and God from our society before they could bring in their new world order. So, you would say, well, wait a minute now, Chaplain, you say that the elite are trained to make us slaves? We're not slaves, you say. Oh, yes, you are. You're already a slave, and you don't know it. Let me prove it to you. 48% of all Americans receive some form of money from the United States government every month. You say you're not a slave? The people in Greece thought they weren't a slave either. But you see what's happening over there. Uh, you say, well, wait a minute. Uh, wh what are you talking about? You're a farmer? They give you a farm subsidy. What is it? It's a form of enslavement. It's a way of bribery. It's a method of the elite doing what they want to do with you. Food stamps? Oh, but you, wait, wait a minute. I, I deserve those. No, you don't. Uh, it, it is a method of enslavement. You say, well, welfare, uh, social security, uh, or maybe you get a paycheck because you work for the government, federal or state. Medicare, Medicaid. 48% of all people in the United States of America receive some sort of check or payment from the United States government on any given month. Now we come around to voting in November. How are you going to vote? Ah, oh, I've got to vote for the president that's going to make sure I get my food stamps and my welfare and my Social Security. And whoever says I'm going to get my hand out from the government, say you're on a slave. You see, all of this was taught. The younger elite 
are taught one thing, how to enslave you. Now, I'm going to coin a word here. The name of the game is control. I, I want to take the word control and deal with it for a moment, if I may. One of the things that I remember learning in those seminars that I attended out in the Bahamas, and one thing that I learned from the elite when I lived with them is control everything, nothing. Uh, now, let me try if I can to explain somewhat, and then I'll come down to the punchline, and then you'll say, oh my goodness, all of a sudden my light turned on, and I'm beginning to see it. The elite are told and taught that they shouldn't even own the coat on their back, but control it. Now, now catch my words, please, very carefully. In those seminars, the young elite were taught not to own their house, but to live in it. And I know all of this is going to, much, so much of it's going to be brand new to you. I remember one day I was with a certain attorney friend of mine. He was close enough friend that I could be very personal with him. And he wasn't charging me by the minute or by the hour. We were just chatting. And I mentioned some of the things that I had learned in those seminars out in the Bahamas. And I said, uh, do you do these things? Do you use this? Do you use this? And I named, I'll name them in a moment. And I named some of these things. And he sat there and he wouldn't answer me. And I said, does your Congress friend know about this? And he wouldn't answer me. Uh, I even asked a judge one time about some of these things and he wouldn't answer me. So this attorney friend, finally when I got through going over a number of things and asking questions and he refused to answer, he looked square at me and I'll never forget, it was kind of a puzzled look on his face. And he said, Catherine, how do you know all this? And I told him where I learned it when I lived with the elite. And then I said, okay, now be honest with me. Do you know about these things? Yeah. I said, do you use these things? Yeah. I said, do you own your airplane? No. Do you fly in it? Yeah. Do you own your house? No. Will your children pay any inheritance tax when you die? No. You must understand how the elite think. They have been taught to think in terms of the laws that they have written for the enslavement of you. The laws are made for the elite. What Congress passes is for their benefit. Their attorneys write the laws. The congressmen never read them. And if some of the congressmen don't want to pass the bills because, vote for the bills because they're afraid that you, 
their constituents will find out about it. The elite have a way, which I'll tell you about in a moment or two, of stepping in and getting them to vote for that bill. We go back again to the word control. The elite, the younger elite are taught, and I heard them explain it in detail in these seminars, and I heard it from the elite themselves when I lived with them. They're taught never to own the coat on their back, never own their house, never own their automobile, never own their penthouse where their business is, never own their yacht, never own their jet aircraft. And this one, I almost hesitate, but I have to give it. I've waited 35 years. Never have any income. Did you hear that? They fly in that jet. They don't own it. They drive that automobile. But it's owned in a trust, or their company supplies it to them. So when it comes down to the end, here it is. You've heard it. You've heard it all over the news lately. Catch the rich. Wall Street protest. It, I, I look at what's happening in the country and I say, if only you knew what I know. If you have the slightest idea what the elite well, here it goes. The elite are not the slightest worried about a bill being passed to tax the rich. <laughs> They're sitting back laughing at you. Why? You don't have anything to be taxed. Oh, you see, I never thought about that. They don't own that jet. They don't own that automobile. They don't own that penthouse. They just put that coat on every morning. They don't own it. They are taught to control everything and own nothing. And they're taught how to do it. I know. I attended their seminars. I heard what they were teaching the younger elite. They know what they're doing. They know the control factors. What do they use? I'll just name a few of them for you. I named him off to that attorney that day. He, he, he wouldn't admit it, wouldn't say a thing. The elite are taught how to use trust, how to use contractual companies, how to use blind trust. How to use family trust. They're taught how to use all of the loopholes that are out there for their use. They know the intricate sides of this, but yet you will go to a nine to five job every day and wonder why you can't make it. But the elite sit there. And they've passed all the laws that they need to be able to live their lifestyle. While you wonder how you're going to make it since the Federal Reserve note 
is losing much of its purchasing power. The elite are not worried about their children inheriting their fortune. Why? They don't own their fortune. And you wonder, oh, how will I ever leave my child an inheritance? It's amazing the elite have none of those problems. They thought to it that it was all done. They taught their young people how to do it. They control everything. And that's what they want with you. The name of the game is control. Now, I'm going to meddle for a while. Congress is controlled by the elite. One of the individuals that I asked to appear with me on this DVD series, the reason I asked him is because you have got to know about inside trading. I learned it years ago when I went to those seminars. Illustration. A person is elected to Congress for the first time. They arrive in Washington. They're a Tea Party member. They're all excited. They're going to change the world. They hardly get that good. They have taught the secrets of the elite. And one of those secrets is inside trading. But it's a trap. I'd like to explain why. I chose a person to deal with the subject of inside trading in this seminar. It may be difficult for you. You may have to listen to it two or three times. You may have to go back and replay that section of the DVD three and four times. But you've got to get it, people, if you don't want to be a slave to the elite. And if you want to warn your Congress people that you're sending off to Washington, your Tea Party members and others, if, if you want to let them know, give them this DVD and tell them what they're going to face when they get there. They'll come home and admit to you that that's the first thing that happened. One of their senior congressional members will come around and say, have you heard about inside trading? Now, next week, just say for instance, next week, there's going to be a bill passed, and it'll be for a certain company. And if you go and buy that company's stock right now, uh, we're going to see to it that this bill is passed so that this solar panel company will have millions and millions of dollars that they can begin to work with. And their stock is going to go right through the roof in the next six months because we've made available to them all these millions of dollars. Now, if you will go and buy that stock right now, before the bill passes, uh, you can make a million. And we'll tell you how to put that million in the Cayman Islands so that you don't have to show it to your constituents when you go home. Oh, you say, yeah, uh, okay. So 
you fall for the line. Everybody does. If you're human, there's no way you're going to keep on turning it down after it's offered to you day after day after day after day. Okay, and all of a sudden you realize, well, I, I did. I bought an honest stock. Yeah, you didn't do anything wrong. And you kept it for six months and you sold it. That's perfectly honest. You can sell a stock. And now I've been shown how to put that in Cayman Islands or the Turks and the Caicos. I hope you're getting some words here, folks. You, you, you might not have heard of the Turks Islands before in the Caicos Islands. Maybe you don't know much about the Caymans. So you put it there. You say, this will pay for my child's education in style at Harvard or Yale. I'm justified in doing it. Now, next month, there is a bill that's going to be passed that the elite want, like they wanted the health care bill. All your constituents were against it, Nellie. Americans flooded Washington saying, don't you vote for that bill. And your senior congressman comes around and says, do you remember how I suggested to you that you should buy that stock and sell that stock? And, you know, we've helped you out. And we, we, we tried to make life a little easier for you and your family. Uh, don't you think, even though your constituents are against it, that you you better vote for this bill? Now, after you've been in Washington for two or three terms, uh, you have made so many millions, and, and you've fallen for their line so many times, you don't have any choice. Have you wondered why the Patriot Act got passed? It turned that off. You remember when we made you a million, made you two million, made you five million? You remember you came in here, uh, a middle-class American Tea Party member, or Democrat, or Republican, and, and you know, you're getting along pretty good now. Uh, we need your vote on the Patriot Bill, even though you know it's going to enslave the American people or the, the health care bill. You getting it? You congressional arrivals, they taught this. I talked to one here some years ago to have to be in one of my meetings. And he heard me say these things, and he said, Chaplain, you're exactly right. We'd hardly gotten to Congress good, and we heard about them talking about all of these things. Now, I'll never forget it. A number of years ago, I was on the phone with one of my elitist friends. I can name him. He's gone on to eternity now. He died about a year ago. His name is Mr. Ken Brom. Many of you wondered for years if I really had friends in high circles, and then finally I was able to give you some names. I remember one day 
By the way, just stated in passing, uh, Mr. Fromm, whom I knew back at Fruit Bay years ago, when he passed away, he knew Christ as his Savior. I never forget talking with his son on the phone just before he died. And I'd had a number of conversations with family members. And his son said to me, Captain, you don't have a thing to worry about. You'll see Dad in heaven. <clears throat> he said, there's no question but that he knows Christ is his Savior. So take heart in knowing that some of the elite are going to see you up there, if you're going to be there also. I remember I was on the phone with him one day, and <coughs> you'll forgive me. I was on the phone with him one day, and we were talking about general things, and uh, I said, I understand that there's something about health care in America. It's going to come before Congress before long. And he said, yes, chaplain, a health care bill. And I said, uh, now, there are some of the elite who know everything that goes on behind closed doors. They know everything that's going to happen a month and a year from now. And he already knew about this. And he said to me, he said, Chaplain, that is not a health care bill. And I said, what? I said, this is labeled to the Americans as health care. He said, Chaplain, what you're going to see present before Congress shortly. He knew about it. They wrote it. The elite of the world wrote this bill. The president never read it before he signed it. Not a single congressman read the 3,000 pages of the health care bill before they signed it. Not one. But I know somebody who did. The elite had read it from cover to cover. They knew everything that was in it. Their attorneys had worded it precisely as they wanted it. And they presented it before Congress. And they had to work hard to get votes. By reminding congressmen, oh, you remember when we helped you make 500000 or a million? And we told you how to do something with it. Then you better vote our way. And so I said, okay, <clears throat> if this is not a health care bill, what is it? He said, Chaplain, this is total control of the American people. Those are exact words. He said, Chaplain, this is total control of the American people. The health care bill is not a health care bill. The health care bill is the ultimate of control of the American population. <clears throat> the Patriot Act. It's the same way. The Patriot Act and the health care bill put together brought about the ability for the elite to bring in the new world order. Well, let me go abroad, if I may. The elite control Greece. 
I was with a financial advisor recently, and I said, why would anybody in their right mind buy any Greek paper, Greek bonds? And he said to me, Chaplain, you don't understand. He said, that's what it's all about. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, the elite are buying the Greek paper that's worthless, and they're buying it with worthless paper. And I said, why do they want them? He said, Chaplain, that's what I mean. You see, when the elite finally are ready to do what they're going to do in the world and letting the financial system collapse, he said, they want every nation on the face of the earth. They want every state in America. They want every country in the world. They want every city in America. They want every county in America to be so in debt that they can step in and say, you don't have any choice. The elite are creating debt intentionally while they prolong the collapse down the road. And I've been trying my best to tell people this. The elite are going to let the collapse take place when they want it, but they aren't going to let it take place. And he said, whenever the elite uh, finally decide to allow the financial collapse to take place, they can step in, for instance, to Greece and say, Greece, you don't have any choice. <clears throat> Your paper's worthless. We own you. You see why the elite are buying the bonds? They'll own the country. And they say, you must accept our new currency. You'll have to take our new world order. Now, that's not only true of Greece. The elite control America. Why do you think that there seems to be no restraints on the national debt? Another trillion and a half, two trillion. On and on we go. Why don't they care? Does it not matter that we are up into the trillions and trillions? No, it doesn't matter one bit, and every person in Congress knows it will never be paid back. The elite want that debt to grow to the trillions and the multi-trillions and the mega-trillions, and when they finally get to the place they're ready to allow the collapse, and they could, with derivatives, they could bring about that collapse tomorrow morning, or maybe even tonight. And all they'd have to do is pull the plug on the derivative market. And that's the reason I chose someone to give the subject of derivatives in this presentation, because you've got to know what they are. You probably never even heard the word. I didn't even have a good definition up until a few months ago. Whenever the elite are ready for the plug to be pulled, they can step in and say, never mind your constitution. Your dollar is already dead. You've got to accept our new world order. You don't have any choice. Your children are crying. They're hungry. We have the answer. They control the Muslim Brotherhood. Egypt, Mubarak, they took him out so they could put the Muslim Brotherhood in. And they're the ones that control the Muslim Brotherhood and support them. Gaddafi in Libya. Now, Mubarak and Gaddafi both were our allies. And they kept things stable in the Middle East. What do we have today? A Muslim Brotherhood controlled by the elite. They control America through the executive orders. 
They control churches for, through 501c3 organizational status. Mr. Rothschild once was quoted as saying, allow me to control the currency of a nation and I care not who makes its laws. Through the Federal Reserve, they control our currency. The currency of the elite, I must give this before I close. I was on the phone with one of my elite friends one day, and I became exasperated. I must admit to you, I was at my wit's end. He told me about this bill before Congress, and that bill before Congress, and this thing, and that thing that was going to happen. I think he was telling me out of respect for the fact that I'd given three years of my life to be their chaplain, and he was trying to help me make preparations for my own family in my own welfare. In fact, he, he had even advised some things. I won't go into that. And I said, okay, what can I do? He said, Chaplain, do you know what our currency is? And I said, no, I don't. He said, our currency is gold and silver. And he said, there's only one thing that you can do in order to maintain your purchasing power. He said, the dollar is gone. He said, the day that the Federal Reserve begins to buy its own paper, the dollar's done with. He said, the only way you're going to maintain purchasing power is our currency. And I said, your currency is gold and silver? Yes. Less than 2% of Americans own gold coins. Less than 1% of Americans own gold coins minted by the United States Mint. Less than one half of a percent of Americans own one ounce gold coins minted prior to 1933. Oh, folks, this is so important. Please, you much catch this. If you are going to purchase the currency of the elite, you need to purchase gold coins minted by the United States Mint. Don't buy foreign coins. They are not legal tender in the United States of America. You are going to need American coins minted by the United States Mint, and please buy coins minted prior to 1933. Why? By law, coins minted by the United States Mint prior to 1933 and silver coins with any date on them, whether it be past or present, cannot be confiscated by the United States government if they ever decide to confiscate gold again as they did many years ago. Did you know that? Buy gold coins minted prior to 1933 and nothing but coins minted by the United States Mint that are legal tender and four states in the United States of America have already passed laws saying that the grocery store, the hardware store, and the drugstore must accept gold coins and silver coins minted by the United States Mint as legal tender for payment of debt. Four states have already passed that. Now, they haven't found out how to do it yet. 
They haven't found a way to implement it. They will. All the refined, now, now please, think of this mentally. All of the refined gold in the world could be put into a cube 60 feet by 60 feet by 60 feet. Why does it have value that paper doesn't have? If it is written on a piece of paper, it's worth the paper it's written on. One of my elitist friends said that to me one day. I'll pass it on to you, some of the best advice I can give. Gold in the year 2000 was $273.60. By 2005, gold was worth, a one-ounce gold coin was worth $518.90. By 2009, that same gold coin was worth $1,096.50. By the end of 2011, that same gold coin was worth $1,566.80. That will be food on the grocery store shelves. I know this disagrees somewhat with some of my survival and friends. There will, please, I'm trying my best people to help you understand what the elite have said. There will be plenty of food on the grocery store shelves, plenty of food and water. The shelves aren't going to be empty. As one of them said to me, Chaplain, if the crop fails in Florida, we're just bringing it in from another country. If we have a crop failure in California, we can bring it in from our New World Order friends somewhere else. There is not going to be a shortage of food and water on the grocery store shelves, but you may go hungry. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Yes, it does. Why? Because you, your currency, is going to devalue to the point. With the trillions of dollars of national debt we have, your currency is going to devalue to the point that you take a wheelbarrow load of Federal Reserve notes to the grocery store to buy a loaf of bread. The grocery stores will have the bread, and the grocery store shelves will be full, but you may go hungry and your children may cry for lack of food because your currency, it has already been planned to devalue it to that point. The name of the game is control. You've got to learn their mindset. Think like the elite, and you can overcome the new world order. Please call the professionals that you'll see on this DVD. They know the issues. That's the reason I've asked them to be on this DVD series. They don't think like the average professional out there. I was in California a number of years ago. Spoke to a group of people, I think there's a few hundred there, it was a caucus for the Republican Party. And after the meeting, a very well-dressed, attractive, middle-aged lady walked up to me and said, Chaplain, I'd like to speak with you after most of the crowd has moved out and you have a few minutes. I said, I'd be glad to. After I noticed most everyone had moved out of the building, I went back and sat down in the auditorium and this lady said, Chaplain, I'm Mrs. So-and-so. I'll not mention her name. You will know who she is. And she said, I am the chairman of the Republican Party of California who introduced Ronald Reagan to the Republican Party, whereby he became president 
of the United States of America. I said, congratulations. We have not had a single president of the United States of America since Ronald Reagan that has not been an elitist. Did you hear me? Ronald Reagan was not one. Hold on. Now, just wait till you hear the story. The lady said, Chaplain, I was at the hotel that night. When Ronald Reagan was to choose his vice presidential running candidate, he said, I was there with them. And she said, Ronald Reagan came to us personally, his close friends, and said, I promise you, I will not choose an elitist as my vice, vice presidential running candidate. And he said, I know that George Herbert Bush is one, and I know Mr. Kissinger is one. And he said, I promise you, I will not choose them as my vice presidential running candidate. He chose Bush. He came to this lady the next day who was the one that introduced him to the Republican Party. And he said, I'm going to have to apologize. He said, I'm very sorry. He said, Bush was there. Kissinger was there. He named a few other people in the room, and I was there. And he said, I was told that either I chose Mr. Bush, as my vice presidential running candidate, or they would smear me with the media all over this nation and guaranteed me I would never become the president of the United States of America. And he said, I had to make a choice, either to accept Mr. Bush, whom I knew is an elitist, or to become the president and try to help America. I had a choice, and I had no choice. And he said, I knew they could do it. And he said, I chose Mr. Bush so that I could help America for eight years. I was watching the morning news a while back. I very seldom ever watch the morning news. And who do you think I saw? I, I, this happened personally. And who was being interviewed? Daddy Bush. And finally, they came to the end of the interview, and the person said, Mr. Bush, I need to ask you one last question. Do you ever watch the morning news? Mr. Bush spoke up and said, no. You know how you can do it. <laughs> He's a very curt person anyway. He said, no, I never watch the morning news. Well, the newscaster was really taken back a step. She had to hesitate for a moment. And finally, she said, well, Mr. Bush, why don't you watch the morning news? And he said, because I already know what it's going to be. Please, folks, view all three of these DVDs. The third one is the most important. Give them to every friend you've got. And God bless you. Thank you for allowing me to be on this DVD in your home or wherever you may be viewing it. I wish you the best in overcoming the new world order.
Hello and welcome back to the third, the final DVD in this series, and we're calling this Reality with my special guest, Pastor Lindsey Williams. Lindsey, welcome back to the program. Stan, thank you for allowing me to use your studio. One of the first things I learned about the elite when I lived with them for three years and was their chaplain was listen to their buzz words. Yeah, they tell us everything they're going to do. It's just that the average person needs to know how to listen to what they're saying. Now, I'd like to use a few buzzwords right now that I was told just a few days ago. You know, I talked with one of them only a few days ago, and as a result, have produced these three DVDs attempting to tell everyone I possibly can, while I can, everything that the elite have planned for the next two years. And in the course of this conversation with this gentleman, he used what I call buzzwords, as I learned years ago to listen to them. Now, as I give these buzzwords, I'd like you to think in your mind, what is the first thing that you think? Because they have a general meaning. They, they all point to a certain specific point. Here we go. War brought the country out of the Depression. I think most people think there that, uh, well, I got a job, I didn't have a job, and because the war industry was gearing up for the war, it gave me a job and it helped us to pull out of the depression we were in. Turmoil in the Middle East two years from now. I think that's probably talking about a war between Israel and Iran. Iran's external enemy, Israel. Crude oil will stay $70 to $50 until the next crisis in the Middle East. Nearly everyone will be working for the government. What do these buzzwords sound like? Now, when we take them as a whole, it sounds like war, doesn't it? Yes. The first, the first buzzword was, war brought the country out of the Depression. Turmoil in the Middle East in two years. Iran's eternal, external enemy, Israel. Every single one of these point to what this gentleman said two years from now, something catastrophic will take place. Think back on some other Burr's words that we heard a number of years ago. Bush Sr., who at one time was our president, was also the ambassador to China. He was the head of the CIA at one time. And Bush Sr. used the words, Bold new world order. A thousand points of light. That's right. Now, those are buzzwords. That's what the elite use on a regular basis, and all of them have a meaning to them. So, let's go into some of these buzzwords, and I'd like to examine them in the course of this third DVD. The buzzwords that this man used to me only a few days ago. Now, this doesn't relate to the conversation I had with him two years ago, but the conversation only a few days ago that brought about the production of these three brand new DVDs. And here's what he said Two years ago, I was told that the elite, uh, that we will not have war with Iran. That was two years ago. Right. And I, I said it on radio talk shows all over that. America and even produced it in one of my DVDs. And I said, the elite do not want war with Iran. But that was the exact opposite to what all the talk show hosts were saying. I mean, I, 
Even I myself was saying, goodness gracious, we've got a whole armada of ships lined up over there in the Middle East, right. right at the uh, uh, Persian Gulf, uh, the Strait of Hormuz. And I said, everything is right ready for war. They were on minutes alert on, on national. I mean, everything was right, touch and go, ready to push the button. And everybody imaginable that I can think of, including myself, was saying, we must be on the verge of war with Iran. And this man comes along and says, no, 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 no. We elite don't want war with Iran. And I came back on radio talk shows and started saying, there's not going to be any war with Iran because the elite just told me so. People thought I was crazy. And I said, a barrel of oil from $147 a barrel to $50 a barrel. People said, you you are stupid. You, you are out in left field. <laughs> you really you laughed you were at wrong. me. That's right. And many other people laughed at me. Talk show host, guest on the show, a man called in who was a Wall Street, uh, uh, I guess he played the futures. And he said, it can't happen. He said, it'll impact the world in such a great way that it just could not take place. Well, he was exactly right. It did impact the world that much, and it happened exactly like the elite told me it was going to. And we have not had war with Iran for the past two years. In fact, you hardly even hear it talked about anymore. That's we true. still have some ships over there. Nobody's saying anything about war with Iran anymore. Are you ready for what the real plans are? Well, they said no war with Iran. Uh, I was told that we have two years. And we will have war. Now, now, now with keep, Iran. Keep in mind, well, I'll get to that in just okay. a moment. Right. <laughs> okay. Keep a step ahead of me today. <laughs> you had a good night's rest last night. Uh, keep in mind that I was told two years ago we do not want war with Iran right now. And then we come down to today, and this individual says there's going to be war, and Iran will be involved, and Israel will be involved. And it's going to sweep through the entire world. He did not use the word nuclear, uh, but he did not say it wouldn't be. And he said there'll be war. Now, what throughout all the entire world, he said it's going to spread. Nothing happens by chance. It is all planned. They know in advance everything they're going to do. So now I'm coming back with these three DVDs and with radio talk shows, and I'm saying, Okay, the elite are now ready. It's time for them to do what they did not want to do two years ago. And mark my words, I, I know I was chaplain with these people to them. I understand their mindset. And they do things meticulously. They plan it out in advance. They know exactly what they're doing. And we are in within two years' time, he said, more than likely, we will have war with Iran. Now, I went back with the, I didn't say war with Iran, but war in which Iran will be involved, and it will spread through the entire world. They now are ready for this. They were not two years ago. So it's, it's back on the board again. Now, I went back to what a very famous person said a number of years ago when he wrote a book. His name was Major General Smedley Butler, one of the greats of past years. In fact, it was back during the days of President Eisenhower, and somebody, Eisenhower and Smedley Butler, were on the scene at the same time, and someone asked President Eisenhower about Smedley Butler, and he said, Smedley Butler, a major general, is one of the greatest men that I know on the face of the earth today. 
And Smedley Butler wrote a book. And in his book, he said the following, War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of very many out of war a few people make huge fortunes. Yes. Smedley Butler. Now, this is what the elite know. And they're going to take advantage of this. And I was told that the elite, within possibly two years, will have war. It planned. It's already in the works. It will begin somewhere in the Middle East. It probably will involve Iran. And it will spread through the entire world. Nelly, and this statement also was made by this individual when he was talking about the elite. He said, Nelly, everyone is going to be working for the government. Mm. Now, if we had war right now, what would happen to every, every facet of society? Right. We would gear up. Right. All of our factories would turn from making automobiles to making war machines and tanks and and airplanes and everything else because we'd have to defend ourselves. And he said to me, he said, within two years, nearly everyone will be working for the government. He also said to me, he said, you will be so broke within two years, you will not be able to rebel against the elite. Now, you see, there's so many facets to this whole thing, and I'm going to bring them out in this third DVD because I have to say a lot of things today. And believe me, uh, I have so much yet left to say that is going to startle you. It's going to be dumbfounded. You're going to be shaking in your shoes by the time you finish this third DVD because I have to bring in everything else that this man said and try to put the ramifications of it if I can. Gasoline, here's another one that he said. He said, gasoline will remain the price it is now. Truckers, enjoy it. Keep <laughs> filling up that tank, you motorhomers. I mean, enjoy this nation. Go to every national park you can. Uh, do everything you can to, to see this country while you can, because gasoline will remain the price it is right now at the gas pump until we have war. He said this. Yes. He said when war breaks out, you're going to be paying 4 to $10 a gallon overnight. Wow. I mean, now, folks, I'm telling you, what the elite have planned. And as I mentioned in my second DVD, I think it was the last one we did, yes, number two, I said, you may have trouble comprehending some of these things, but if you do, just stick around a while. Because two years is not too long. Even at my age, I have full intentions of being around another many years, way past two years. Then he said, and this stands to reason too, if we're headed for war in the Middle East, and will spread to the whole world. This stands to reason also. He said gold and silver will be the only thing that will be of true value. Now, at time of war, currencies fluctuate something horrible. Some currencies disappear, especially the countries that are in the middle of war, like they did in Germany, where you take a wheelbarrow load of, uh, uh, of German marks to the grocery store in order to buy a loaf of bread. Other countries increased in value. Switzerland did great because that's where Hitler had his uh, 
had his money stored, and so Switzerland got by quite well. You see, currencies fluctuate, and the, the currency of the elite is gold and silver. They don't pay attention to paper. Paper means nothing to them. They, they laugh at paper. Uh, the elite have taken away our jobs. They've moved them abroad. I gave the figures on yesterday. The elite have moved them abroad. They've, if you don't believe they've, uh, they've taken our jobs abroad, call the airline or call the credit card company. <clears throat> and when the person comes on the line on the other end with that little brogue that you'll hear, say, by the way, what country am I talking to? There's no such thing as talking to an American anymore. And folks, you still fly the airlines and you still use the credit cards. What's wrong with you? <laughs> when all of the Americans are moved abroad, all of the jobs are moved outside of this country, our automobile manufacturing, everything else eventually moving out of America, and when it's all moved out, how are you going to have enough money to pay for anything? So here we are sitting, the elite have moved our jobs, and you still fly the airlines, you still use the credit card, not me, I quit. As of three months ago, I quit using my credit card, except in an emergency where I have to run an automobile and they won't let me have one without it or something like that. I do not use a credit card anymore. I am sick and tired of hearing somebody in some other country trying to tell me my airline schedule. You know, it's so sickening what they have done to us. They have you right where they want you. The elite have finally given us enough baseball and apple pie and beer, I don't drink the beer, but that, that they have the average American right where they want. 61,000 manufacturing jobs were lost in one month in the United States of America because the elite have moved our manufacturing outside of the country. Then I must meddle a while. Uh, I'm one. I've been one for 50 years, so I can talk about them. Pastors and churches, you have been bound. You cannot say one word. You, you, you can't say a word about the president. You can't say a word about the congressman. You can't say anything about the, um, well, I won't talk about those people. Uh, I, th I think the Bible is very plain about what God thought about Sodom and Gomorrah. You can't say a thing for 501c3. You'd be discriminating, and they could put you right in jail. A talk show host can say more, can to preach better sermons than the average preacher today because of 501c3, and the talk show host is still free to say what he wants to. And then they came down to Homeland Security. Oh, I attended a seminar the other day. It just broke my heart almost, where a pastor stood up and told about the meeting that he had been invited to by Homeland Security, and he attended in order to see what they had to say. And at the meeting, they informed the pastors that Homeland Security would like to request of the pastors that they be able to advise their congregations to be obedient to whatever orders were given by Homeland Security in the case of a mass national disaster. They're preparing. Then I attended a church after that in which the pastor gave out the form to his congregation and asked, I was in the church, I have the form in my files of where the pastor asked every member of the congregation to fill out this form telling them everything from how many bathrooms they have in the house to where they work to what their email address is, every detail about them, 
from beginning to end, and I saw right through it because I just attended that seminar, and I could see Homeland Security written all over it, and pastors, you'll have it in your files, and they'll knock on your door, and they'll say, 501c3, you've got to give us everything we want. You have no choice. You bowed to us. They'll tell you the day that you can no longer tell people they need to be born again in order to get to heaven either. That's right. That's in the works. You mark my words. They'll, they'll, there'll be a day that they'll say it's discrimination if you stand up and say, if you don't trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're in jeopardy eternally. They'll someday say you pastors can't say that. You can say it right now, but it won't be very long. For the past 35 years, everything that the elite have told me I have voiced it to the American public. It has happened. Not one single thing has failed to happen. They said $147 a barrel is going to $50. It took place. People said, you're crazy. It happened exactly like they said. Then they came along to a president. They said, Mr. McCain is our man. They didn't get him because they aren't divine. They're pretty close to it, they think, but they aren't. There's only one hope for America. Only one. And, and that's what I'm coming down to today. I'm going to try to outline it in, in a very unusual manner. There is positively one hope for America, and that is divine intervention, because the people are not going to rise up against the elite. I have come to the conclusion that the elite have so deadened the mind of the average American that they will not take action. They will continue to allow the dollar to deteriorate. They will continue to allow the elite to totally control every facet of their lives, their churches, their bank accounts, their social security, every part of their life, their health care program. They will continue to give it all over to the elite and will never rise up. Why? They've too, become too accustomed to having no freedom left. And I have come to the conclusion that there is only one solution for America. And I think it was put the best I've ever heard it by Alexis de Tocqueville. He was a Frenchman, very famous author. Just after the Constitution was written and America was became a nation, and de Tocqueville said, I cannot understand why America has become so great. And he said, I'm going to travel to America and try to find out. And he later wrote a book. And I'd like to read you just one paragraph from it. I sought for the greatness and genius in America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. And it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless prairies. And it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world of commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame. You bunch of little panty-waist preachers. I'm talking about myself. You've lost your backbone. You haven't got enough gumption to stand up and tell people what they are anymore. You won't talk about certain facets of our society but the bible does but you have to leave that part of the bible out and he said it wasn't that this is the Tocqueville. say i'm reading his words the others i added 
He said, not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her greatness and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And that's where we are today. We have ceased to be good. Our perverted Hollywood movies have been sent all over the world. We have, we have perverted the world with a democracy instead of a republic, Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution of the United States of America. And we've taken the, the preachers out of the pulpits and made panty waste out of them. And nobody can stand up and call a, a spade a spade anymore except Lindsey Williams and a few talk show hosts. I, I, I think the only hope for America. But Benjamin Franklin put it quite well, too. You remember who Benjamin oh, Franklin yeah. did. He, he was one of the signers of the Constitution. Great man of God. Uh, I, mean, I know some people doubt about who he was, but I, I think there was a great evangelist back in those days. One of the flaming evangelists had a great influence on this man's life. And he was a great politician. And in some ways, he, he definitely had things straight. But he said it before the Congress. And i like to read you two paragraphs of Benjamin Franklin before the Congress of the United States of America. The small progress we have made is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfections of, of human understanding. In this situation of this assembly, groping, as it were, in the dark, to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when it is presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we not, have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to eliminate our understanding. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and were graciously answered. I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convinced proof I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. Yeah. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probably that an empire can rise without his aid. We have been assured, sir, in the scarce writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall scarce in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayer imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in this service. Excellent. Benjamin Franklin. I say the same thing. America can only survive if we have divine intervention. Amen. The people aren't going to intervene. They, they, they're not going to rise up. We can't fix our problems. Jesus is the only solution. He's the only thing that can fix it. Just like we can't save ourselves, Jesus is the only thing that fix this nation. And until this nation turns to Jesus, 
wholesale, nationwide, a sweeping revival. Well, here goes. This is going to be very potent. Something woke me up this morning at 6 o'clock. And I revised my number three reality. And the next few pages is what I heard. The elite have a God. I know this. You see, I lived with these people three years. I sat across the dinner table. I lived in the same dorms. I had an opportunity to talk with them on their level, not in my church. I was the chaplain on their pipeline, an oddity that never had one before. The elite, I declare to you, have a God. They are not atheists. You asked me the other day, what are the elite really like? Very few people ever rub shoulders with them. Uh, I, I tried to say I've written three books about them, trying to explain to you what they're like. Maybe the best way I could possibly say it is to go to the beginning. Cain, Abel. One was an elite, one was a Christian. Cain had a religion. He brought an altar, he built an altar. He brought a sacrifice. Abel, he worshiped God. He built an altar. He had a sacrifice. Cain had an altar that had flowers and herbs. Oh, it smelled good. Had the finest of essential oils. The most beautiful, everything you could imagine. Abel took a lamb. He'd been told to do so. He believed what he'd been told. You see, the only difference is faith. For by grace he is saved through faith. He had faith in what God had said. And so he built an altar, and he killed a lamb, and he put on it. Now, whether this agrees with you modern-day ecologists or not, uh, I'm not going to argue that point. I'm just going to say God knows what he's doing, whether you know what you're doing or not, ecologist. And so he, he built an altar, and he killed a lamb, and he put on it, and he had it a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. The elite are religious. They have a God. They have a set of morals. Now, I know this sounds strange to some people out there who maybe never uh, rub shoulders with these people. They have a moral standard, but their moral standard is the same standard as evolutionists. Human beings are nothing but evolutionized animals. Therefore, you have a right to have the same moral code as an animal. You can just go out and have free sex. You can watch all the porno movies you want. You can look at your filthy, dirty language on your television. You can do this. You can rate your movies, X-rated and all the rest. Your children can play their Xbox. And everything is just fine because you're nothing but an evolutionized animal, so you have a right to act like one. Now, that is a religion. Evolution is a religion. And people believe in it. And you try to tell them that it was done by creation, and it happened by God's hand, and they'll call your hand immediately and tell you that their religion is right. I can't accept it. If God said it, they said, but I can sure accept what Charles Darwin said. And don't you think for a moment's time that the elite don't have a religion? They do have a religion. Now, both of these boys, Cain and Abel, built an altar, worshipped God, had a sacrifice, but that's where it stops. Right there. At that point, 
everything changes pictures. I, I, I'm meddling now. Definitely. George Bush. God bless America. I have a question for you. Which God? Yeah. Which God? I, I, I must. Here it is right here. It, it's, it's in the Bible. Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to begin. You, you remember Christ. He now has been baptized. He, John the Baptist has announced him as the Messiah on the earth. Uh, and he begins his ministry. And the first place he goes, uh, and of course, everything was taken care of with John being the one to say he's here. And then he goes out and he's tempted of the devil. He had to be tempted to prove that he could not sin. And he didn't. Uh, he was perfect. He was God in the flesh. And here it is. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdom of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that it is delivered unto me, Satan said, and to whomsoever I will I give it. Oh, I love what Christ said. He came back and said, If thou therefore wilt worship me, Satan said, If thou therefore shalt worship me, all this shall be thine. And Christ said unto Jesus, answered and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, the word of God, the most powerful thing Amen. in the fourth the face of this universe. More powerful than an atomic or a hydrogen That's or a right. nuclear bomb. That's right. Uh, definitely. By which the worlds were established. And he said, For thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Who created Satan? Great. Right. He was a created being. Yeah. But even though he fell and, and claims right. to be a God, and I said, the Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. There's something real neat about this. Christ never rebuked the devil. He never called him a liar. He never said these kingdoms aren't yours. He never one time said you don't have the power to give them to me. Why? Because they do belong to him. That's right. He could have given them to him. And the only thing that Jesus would have gotten would he would have gotten them a few thousand years in advance. He's going to have them someday anyway. It says that he'll reign on the throne of David right. and that he will be the Lord of this world and he will set up his throne here. The only thing Satan wanted to do was give him a little piece of the pie. Just a little baseball and apple pie right now. You're going to be total slaves two years from now. Two years from now, you won't have any money left. But for right now, I'll just give you your baseball and apple pie and let you have a good time out here with your beer and watching your television set. And you never mind raising up against the elite. Just go ahead and let them do what they want to. What difference does it make? After all, you're okay right now. So you see, the elite do have a God. They do have a set of morals. They do worship. And who did George Bush talk about? God bless America. Uh, 
but God. Now, the elite have a code of ethics. That code is not the Bible. But they do have a code of ethics. One of the codes of I'm going to go over these things point by point now because this is going to amaze many people out there in the viewing audience. One of the codes of ethics that I learned from the elite is they are obligated by their code of ethics to tell you everything they're going to do before they do it. Hmm. Now, I didn't say that they'll stand up before the television and say, this is what I'm going to do to you two years from now. They do it in buzzwords. Uh, think for a moment. A movie. I mentioned this in the uh, number two DVD on yesterday. I'll repeat it here slightly. The movie Oil Storm came, was all over television two weeks before Katrina. And it pictured everything that Katrina was going to do to New Orleans. Everybody said, marvelous movie, well produced, quite well done. Katrina hit, did everything it said, and I never heard any more about it. People never even put the two together. But the elite, through their buzzwords, through the movie that they had had Hollywood to produce, were telling you everything that they were going to do by heart and the other programs that they have to manipulate a hurricane where they wanted it to go. And they were telling you everything that they were going to do, but the average American never paid any attention, did not catch it. Now, I'd like to show you what I need you to watch for. I have told you in DVD number one and DVD number two what I was told that the elite have planned for you and me and everyone in this viewing audience for the next two years. And it will happen. Just stick around and watch. So I'd like to try to point out what I want you to look for. Now, I hope you'll keep this DVD. I want you to copy it and give it to everybody you possibly can, but at the same time, keep one copy for yourself. Because I want you to go back, and two years from now, I want you to tell me if these things happened. Because you know they will. I know they will. Now, here's the buzzwords of the elite. Uh, I want you to watch for the war movies that come out, and they'll start shortly. And there'll be more and more and more and more and more of them up till the time that they have the conflict. Mark my words, this is a prediction now. Because they're going to tell you. This is Williamsology. They're going to tell you exactly what they're going to do. They're probably going to even tell you what countries they're going to do it with. And they will probably even tell you by what method they're going to do it. Whether it be by air, by ground, uh, by Navy, more than likely. You'll see all of this over a period of time because they're obligated by their moral code to tell you what they're going to do. Number two, uh, the national media is their mouthpiece. And you will hear from some of the leading people in the media buzzwords whereby they will tell you everything they're going to do some while back. I very seldom watch television. I know that the media, everything they say, you believe the exact opposite, and that's what the truth is. So I very seldom ever watch the evening news. But one night, I was sitting there watching the evening news, and I was appalled what I saw. Here was this famous newscaster, and he was interviewing, of all people, Bush Sr., who was president of the United States of America many years ago, old, old man now, 
and he was in a, this newscaster was interviewing him, and they went through the whole process. Bush answered his questions kind of curtly, like he used to do, and finally came down to the end, and he asked him one final question. He said, "Mr. Bush, I'd like to ask you one last question," and, and he said, "This kind of relates to this newscast." He said, "Do you watch the evening news?" <laughs> I mean, that, that was a rather pointed question, but the old man Bush spoke up with no hesitation whatsoever and said no. Just like that. Well, it, the newscaster was really taken back. I mean, he hesitated for a moment. He had a terrible time finding his words, and he finally said, well, Mr. Bush, why not? Oh, his words were the greatest buzzwords I think I've ever heard out of the elite, because Mr. Bush said, I already know what it's going to be. Just like I heard it with my own ears. If I had not heard it, I would not have believed it if someone had told me. He said, because I already know what it's going to be, because he is one of the elite of the elite, he and Kissinger and a few others, and they know everything that's going to happen. You listen to the media. The media over the next two years are going to be giving you some choice buzzwords if you know how to interpret what they're saying. Next. Hollywood is their perversion. Now, do you, are you noticing my words here? I got these six o'clock this morning. Very unusual. The national media is a mouthpiece. Hollywood is their perversion. We have sent our filthy, dirty movies all over the world. Sorry. Instead of giving them Christianity, instead of sending missionaries, instead of improving their morals, Instead of sending them a republic and giving them a proper form of government, we've perverted the world with our filthy, Sorry. dirty sex movies. And I can't believe that you'd advertise soap with a naked woman. <laughs> and how can you possibly advertise a man's clothing by letting a woman half-dressed have her arms all the way around? It makes no sense that everything has to be advertised with a nude woman. Perversion. And it's Hollywood. It's the style today. Watch Hollywood for the next two years. They're going to put out every movie that they won't put out to take the world right to the mental state that they want it to go to. Next. They offer you baseball, apple pie, beer. But there's one thing that the elite do not have. Now, they have, they have the money, they have the banks, they have the industry. They now have the president and the Congress right under their thumb. They have General Motors. They have Chrysler. They have the big corporations of America, everything but Ford. Thank the Lord they didn't bow to them at the time that Chrysler and General Motors did. They have it all. There's one thing the elite do not have. I never found it when I lived amongst them. They do not have salvation. They can give you everything else, but they can't give you any salvation. They have their moral code, not the same as moral code as, as the one true and living. You see, there are two great forces out there. There is the true and living Jehovah, who created all of heaven and earth and gave us his word and sent us his son and purchased our salvation. That's the true and living Lord. Then 
there is the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, the Bible says. He is the God of this world, commonly known as Lucifer or Satan. Now, make no mistake, the elite have a God. Amen. And he is the God of this world. And listen to their buzzwords and watch. Here's what I want you to watch for. And you'll see it happen. The first one's going to startle you. Because the elite are going to do this. You will see a big increase in the stock market. You're going to see them cheering, yelling, hollering, throwing out banners. The stock market is going to go up and up and up and up until the time that they are ready have everybody pulled in depression. And you have two years. Mark my words. I know some of you think it's going to happen in the next two or three months. No. I was told that the elite have altered their time frame. And you have approximately two years. You're going to see the stock market go up and up and up. Secondly, watch for gold and silver prices. They are going to escalate rapidly. Gold and silver never change in value. Uh, I, I mentioned that 1964, 65, I took one of these into a bank and went up to the teller window. That's back when you could still get one of these for it and got one of these. Today, it'll take 20 to 25 of these to get one of these. Now, you see, gold and silver never change in value. They have the identical same value. One ounce of gold in 1960 would buy that beautiful suit you have on. I'm not going to ask you what you paid for it. It's nice, and I have on a fairly nice one, too. I bought it in New Zealand when I was down there, lecturing across New Zealand and Australia, and it cost a few dollars, so I still keep wearing it. Uh, but it, I could buy with one ounce of gold. Back then, I could buy a nice suit. Yes. Today, 2000 and whatever it may be, when you see this DVD, uh, I could take one ounce of gold today, go to the gold dealers, cash it in, and go buy the identical same suit. Back then, it would take me somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three hundred dollars to buy my suit. Today, it'll take a thousand to twelve hundred dollars to buy that identical same suit. Now, what changed in value? Did the paper Federal Reserve note change in value, or did the gold and the silver one ounce coin change in value? The gold and silver never change value. Right. They say gold went up today. No, it didn't. The dollar went down. That's right. <laughs> gold and silver didn't change in value at all. I mean, if I went and bought a, a piece of gold, Back a number of years ago for $250, that gold still worth $250 worth of purchasing power today. Hasn't changed one iota. The only thing that has changed is the dollar. So I'm begging you, watch the price of gold and silver because the dollar deteriorates in a direct proportion to what gold and silver go up. Your gold and silver has not increased or decreased one penny. It's that the dollar has changed its value, yes. the Federal Reserve note. So don't pay any attention to the dollar. Don't pay any attention to the stock market. Pay attention to gold and silver. And watch gold. It is going to go up considerably. 
Next, bank takeovers. You want to watch them carefully. We've had hundreds since January the 1st. We will have hundreds and probably thousands more until they've gobbled up every small banking system in America and they want nine major banks only. I have the number. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Did he say anything about bank runs or bank closures? No, they don't want that. Wrong. They want to keep you from going to your bank and pulling your money out. They want to keep you from making a run on the bank. They'll get two banks this week and three banks next week and four banks the next week. And they'll get a few in California and a few in Mississippi and a few in Idaho. And they'll get take them all over the country. And so they never want broke. you to know. what they, they don't want you to understand what's going on. I want you to start counting the number of banks that are closed every weekend. In different parts of the country, they do it intentionally. They know exactly what they're doing. They're vicious people. Uh, and I want you to watch the number of bank closures. And as we get closer and closer to the end of this two-year period, you'll see more and more and more until they narrow it down to nine. That's all that will be left. And those nine will get everything that the Federal Reserve wants to lend to them so that they're under total control. And everybody in the banking system will work for the government of the United States of America, which basically is controlled by the elite. Wow. The name of the game is control. And it's like a frog boiling in a pot. They're going to do it gradually over a number of years. Next thing, watch for. So they're taking over America. Oh, positively. Just as sure as they did it with a bullet, but they did it not with a ballot. They did it with a dollar. Sure. They know exactly what they're doing. And the only difference between Lindsey Williams and everybody watching this DVD is I can pick up my phone and I know the phone number of some of these elite and they'll talk with me because by the providence of God I was allowed to be their chaplain and more than likely the only chaplain some of them ever knew in their life and for three years time they faced me every day I was kind of like a little puppy dog it, it, it was a mascot on a pipeline not a minister a mascot it was nice to have a guy around with the word chaplain over the top of his hard hat. Look, Senator, this is Chaplain Williams, <laughs> chaplain of the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline. Aren't you proud of us? Look who I am. Even the elite like to boast sometimes. And they loved having a chaplain around. But I still today can pick up the telephone and call some of them. More than one, by the way. I still can pick up the telephone today. I have their personal phone numbers. Wow. They answer their lines. You can't get to them. I talked to one a few days ago. That's the reason I produced these three DVDs. I am pleading with you. I'm begging with you. I cry out unto you. Listen to me. I listen to them. Everything they've told me for 35 years has taken place. Next item. I want you to watch and count, and you'll see it in your newspaper. It's, it's published there sometimes. The number of bankruptcies that take place in the United States of America, not just corporations, private bankruptcies, personal bankruptcies, personal bankruptcies. I want you to count them. Start keeping a record. A thousand this month, two thousand next month, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand. You're going to see a drastic increase in bankruptcies over the next two years. 
you, that's what's going to startle you. And I give it partially because of something happened this week in a bank in America. You might have noticed it somewhere. It's access to your safety deposit boxes. You are going to see more and more banks that are going to say, whenever they're taken over by the Fed, you can't have access to your safety deposit box for so many weeks. You won't be able to get into it. I want you to watch the access that they're allowing you to have to your safety deposit boxes and let it teach you something. Why? Why are they closing off the safe deposit boxes? Because that's where most people keep their gold and silver. And maybe cash too? And cash. Instead of between the mattress. Their extra wealth so that they won't have access to it. Exactly. Which gives the elite control. The name of the, the game, game is control. control. <laughs> and that's exactly what the elite are going to have. So watch the number of bankruptcies. Watch the number of safety deposit boxes that you won't be able to get to anymore. And more and more, you'll see this happen. Mark my words. Just watch it. You'll see it take place. I want you to watch the movies Hollywood produces. Watch them carefully. Very carefully. War movies. Uh, bomb movies. Uh, extraterrestrial beings. Uh, unusual items. I don't know what they might come looking for buzzwords. Looking for buzzwords. Look at every one of them. Look for buzzwords. And then next I want you to watch very carefully the pace of inflation. Now you'll have to do this at the grocery store. As you go to the grocery store, put down the price of what you pay for that pizza this week. Then put down what you pay for that same pizza next week or that bottle of milk or whatever it may be that you buy. Keep you a, a running track of it because inflation will, will will escalate. It begins right where it is right now, and you're going to go up and up and up very rapidly and toward the end. Now, this is at the end. Toward the end of this two-year period, you're going to see this. Now, I've given you what to watch for over the next two years that they'll be doing these things. And at the very end, you'll see this happen. They will limit the amount that you can withdraw from the bank. You'll be close to the end by then. I mean, you're so close to the end by then, you don't have any time to do anything. It's too late. If if the average American waits till that point, they're done for. Your children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren will forever be slaves to the elite. I have been told that you will be so poor within three years that you will not be able to rise up against the elite. They know right now that there's a very small, fine line that people could still get through and might have some hope. This was admitted to me. They think they have it made. They're, they're quite sure that they have everybody right where they want them. And that they're going to be able to accomplish what they want, but they know within two years that fine line's removed and you're gone. It's all over with. I want you to watch toward the end the amount of withdrawal that you can take from the bank in the way of cash. By that time, you've about had it. The control measures number one, banking. That'll be the first indicator. Because keep in mind that control factor all comes through the pocketbook and that determines your dinner table, your job, everything that goes on in commerce. Secondly, health care. 
Oh, oh, please. Doctors, I feel so sorry for you. I don't know what to do. You're going to see health care. Thirdly, and this you already see partially uh, as of the Patriot Act. And if you haven't gone through an airport lately, you have a rude awakening. You're treated like a criminal. Armed guards all around you when they are no terrorists whatsoever. And you've got to wake up, people. Uh, since when do we have to be treated like, herded like animals into a line and treated like criminals when we go through Homeland Security? Your airports, watch them carefully. You're going to see more and more activity of total control in how people travel and the airports. Next. Youth Corps. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. SS. Brown Church. Brown Church. Uh, watch it. It's going to be pushed and pushed and pushed until every child from a certain age to a certain age will be not just requested, as they say, required. And when they get you in there, it's brainwashing. It's the chip. It's everything imaginable. You take the shots or you're gone. I mean, they, they give you no choice. Watch the Youth Corps. It's nothing in the world but another SS. Next, mandatory service. Now, I'm not talking about just for the young people in the military. I'm talking about, now, now, please, I know more things than what you think I know. I mean, these people have told me some things that, folks, I can only say so much. But I'm trying my best to give you the buzzwords and you read between the lines. There's going to be mandatory service in society. So you're talking about more than just the young folks. I'm talking about adults. Adults are going to be required to form community service ordered by the government and the elite. Mark my words. And this service will include more than you just showing up once a month. To pick up garbage on the roadside. Believe you me, there are many more things in store. And then the final and the last and the ultimate, and after they know they positively had everything under control, including your pocketbook, is going to be gun control. Mark my words. That'll be just about the gun last control. Time. Take away the guns and they can do what they want. The general who was in charge of the attack on Pearl Harbor lived through the entire war and was not killed. After the war, he was being interviewed by a group of media people. He at this point now was free. Japanese had surrendered. America and Japan was friends again. And he was in, interviewed as an old man. And the question was asked him, sir, when you spearheaded the attack on Pearl Harbor, America, our, our force out there was crippled. You could have easily gone right on to the west coast of the United States of America and invaded America, and more than likely you would have been successful. Why didn't you do it? His answer will go down in infamy. He said, the reason that I did not immediately invade America is because I went to college there. And I learned while I was there that every American is armed. 
They all have guns. And he said, I could not conquer the American public as long as they had guns. Therefore, I did not continue the attack to the west coast of the United States of America immediately. They gave us time to recoup. And America, in its resilience, did. And as a result, Japan never attacked our west coast. And that was his answer. That'll be the last thing they'll do. If masses wake up, you still have time to travel. There will be travel restrictions. The last restriction will probably be the media. Now, this is going to startle you also. They're not going to bother the talk show hosts for a while. They're not going to bother the national media for a while. Or the pastors. Uh, Rush Limbaugh will still, still be out there. The pastors, for a while, will still have their freedom. Okay. Uh, Savage Nation will still be on the air for a while, quite a while yet. And a few others. Why? One reason. You see, they have to have the national media in order to carry out their perversion and tell the American people what they want. And they know the day that they take away the freedom of the talk show host that they will raise such a ruckus. Yes. And make such a noise that the elite lose their privileges of the national media also. And the last, one of the last things to be touched will be the media. Don't you think that the removal of the guns and removal of the talk show hosts is going to be pretty close to simultaneous? Yes. Yes, it'll pretty much be simultaneous. Uh, they will have their control. They'll have it that way. Well... It really comes down to this. They have a form of godliness, but have no salvation. No salvation for the soul and no hope for eternity. But they have their form of godliness to their God. Without salvation and without eternity. Just the other day in our family devotions, my son was reading in the book of Ezekiel. Son of man, I've made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the words of my mouth and give them warning for me. If thou warn the wicked and he turn not from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. America, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't turn from your wickedness, you're dead. Amen. There is no hope. Except for divine intervention. And divine intervention normally doesn't come until there's repentance. And I've seen no repentance in America. I agree. But thou hast delivered thy soul. He's saying to Ezekiel, now, if you tell them, and they don't turn from their sin, Ezekiel, you've delivered your soul. You're free. Because you told them. I've told you. I, I flew halfway across America to produce these three DVDs. I'm going to get on every radio talk show in this nation that will allow me on. I'm going to tell it. I have, I have delivered my soul. And, and I told you when I arrived here, Stan, that I begged the Lord not to make me do these DVDs. I've been praying for weeks. I have, taken, I have not done a single radio talk show for three months. I have disappeared for three months. 
Two months of that time, I've been intensively praying almost every day, Lord, don't make me do this. I don't want to call these people. I'm afraid of what they'll say. I said this on one of the leading talk shows of America before I quit doing talk shows. I said to the talk show host when he said, please call these people and find out what they're going to do next. And I said, I don't want to know what they're going to do next. I'm afraid. And he kept begging me. And finally, I said, I'm gone. And my family and I, we left home. We traveled to another state. We stayed for two months. I didn't want to contact these people. When I finally contacted them, I was scared to death. I, I almost trembled. Uh, I, I, I was startled. I'm still stunned at, at what I was told. And he said, Ezekiel, if you tell them you have delivered your soul, I've delivered my soul. I want everybody out there in this listening audience to hear me. I have told you. Amen. Now, again, when a righteous man doth turn, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast given him warning, he shall die in his sins, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man, that that righteous man sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live. America, do you want to live? You don't have to suffer this. There's no way that you have to have this happen within the next two years. You can turn the world around. You're still intact. American cities haven't had any bombs yet. Everything is in place. You can still do something. You still have a dollar. Not worth much, but it's worth more than most any other currency in the world. Until just a few days ago, it was a standard currency of the world. You still have time to do something about it. And he says, he shall surely live. Because he is warned, also thou hast delivered thy soul. I have both choices right here today. I've never done this on TV. This is the first. You've never seen it before. This is America's first choice. His name was Bill Street. He was the manager and had all responsibility of Franklin Bluff's camp on the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline. He had traveled all over the world. I had many opportunities to sit in the office and talk with him. I remember one day I walked in his office and he had a good sense of humor. He said, Chaplain, GD, I'm glad to see you here today. <laughs> just the way these pipeliners did, it, it just their life. It's all they ever knew from place to place. I didn't say the words. And I said, Bill, good to see you. He said, Chaplain, everybody up here on this pipeline is up here because of some kind of a hang-up. I said, Bill, what's my hang-up? Oh, he said, religion. <laughs> I talked with Bill by the hours. He was unsaved. He didn't know Jesus. He'd never been born again. He was wicked. He had a party in Fairbanks one day. He invited all of his closest friends. 
I knew what they were going to have. Be a junk, drunken brawl. I, I knew there'd be women there. I knew everything else would take place. And I, I hardly talk about it. He said, Chaplain, you're going to be at my party. The chaplain at one of these parties thrown by Bill Street in Fairbanks. He said, I'll sign the, the airline ticket for you for you to come to Fairbanks. I went. It was exactly what I thought it'd be. They went on to Louis hours of the morning. I went back and uh, back to the camp the next day. And I tried my best over and over and over to witness to Bill Street. I tried every way possible to tell him that he needed Jesus. I'll never forget one day I walked in his office and I said, Bill, we'll try one more time. I was to talk to him for an hour. I said, Bill, please consider the fact that if you'll repent of your sins and believe on what God did for you in sending his son, you can be born again. You can be a changed man, your family. You can be happy. He wasn't happy. And I said, Bill, would you do it right now? Let's just get on our knees right now. Nobody's in your office. We're all by ourselves. Nobody was around. You won't be embarrassed. I said, let's, let's get on your knees right now and, and, and trust Jesus. I'll never forget it. He sat there, and he sat there, and he sat there, and he looked down, and he looked up, and he looked back and forth a number of times. He, he must have sat there for four or five minutes. And finally, he, not now, chaplain. I'll talk to you another day. I'm busy. And when Bill Street did that, you know to leave his office. Conversation over. Over. If I remember correctly, it was following week. A turbo auto was going across Adigan Pass. It was cloudy day. The pilot thought he could see through. He knew where the pass was. He'd flown it many times. Very proficient pilot. Got to the top of the pass, made a mistake, couldn't make it across. The airplane flew into the side of the mountain. Every, air, every person in the airplane was killed. After it was all over with, I contacted Aliasco in Fairbanks and I said, I want something Bill Street owned. They said, well, Chaplin, there's one thing we don't want to give to his wife. We don't think she'd want it. It has the blood stains inside. Hard hat. His hard hat. They said, we'll give it to you. Didn't I have it right here. Didn't know that that was going to be his last opportunity. He didn't know what it was. And... I have it in my hand. His head was creased. The hard hat broke. There are blood stains inside. He died. He didn't accept Jesus. So close. So close. It was four or five minutes he was thinking. He was making a decision. He came so close. So many people come so close. They, they don't accept Jesus. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the way, the door. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. America has two choices. You've just seen the first one. He said no. But fortunately, that's not all. There is another choice. And his name is Speedy Jones. I'll never forget him. He was foreman for Houston, Houston Constructors. And I just the other day was reminded of this when this person that gave me all this information, uh, I said, by the way, do you happen to remember Speedy Jones? Oh, he said, Chaplain, I remember Speedy Jones and how Prudhoe Bay, the whole pipeline up there was affected by what happened to this man. And he said, yeah, he, he let me know he was in one of the services. So I knew that he knew what was going on. Speedy Jones, he, he was in his 60s. He'd been a pipeliner all of his life. That's all he ever knew. He was rough, tough, cussing, drinking. Nobody could outdrink him. He, he could drink half the night, not get drunk. Uh, he could cuss better than any sailor. There was no man could whip him. He never locked his dorm door at night. And I had only been at Prudhoe Bay for a short time, and a group of two or three Christians said to me one day, they said, Chaplain, we need to pray for Speedy Jones. You know, if he trusted Christ as his Savior, this whole pipeline would be turned upside down. I said, good, let's start. Well, we prayed, and we prayed. We prayed for weeks. And the men decided that they would start putting some feet to their prayers. They knew where Speedy Jones' room was. And they knew which restroom he used, which was in this big, long, audic hallway. And so they started taking gospel tracts, their little pamphlets with scripture in them, and they would lay them around the restroom where Speedy Jones would go. And Speedy Jones was not afraid of anything. I mean, he'd tackle a lion. Uh, a bear wouldn't bother him one bit. I mean, th this guy was just untouchable. Uh, and... Somehow, some of these gospel tracts were disappearing. And they came back and told me, they said, Chaplain, we left these little gospel portions in the restroom and around on the sink and around the shower and said they started disappearing. We don't think the other men are picking them up. We think Speedy must be getting them. Oh, boy. And so I said, well, that's good. Let's keep praying. Let's pray a little harder. And so sure enough, one night, we all showed up. It must have been maybe 10 or 12 of us by this time showed up for the worship service up at Prudhoe on the big pipeline. And who do you think walked in the service? Speedy Jones. Oh, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> I mean, those men were dumbfounded. Speedy just didn't do this. But he realized that something was going on. He wanted to know what it was. And he'd been reading those gospel tracts, we found out later. And sure enough, he showed up at a service one night. I gave my sermon, tried my best to tell him how to be saved. We extended the invitation as long as we possibly could to try to get him to make a decision. He didn't move, and he got up and walked out. I don't think I even talked to him that night. He got out in a hurry. Well, then the men decided that they would sneak a Bible into his room. After all, he'd heard a sermon before. Right. Yeah. And he read some of these gospel tracts, and he came to service. So he said, one of them stuck in his room one day when they didn't think he was there and lay a Bible down on his desk. Now, Speedy Jones never locked his dorm door. There was nobody 
could fight his biggest feeding. And so, sure enough, one of the men went up to the door one day to open and go in. The door was locked. Came back and told me. He said, Chaplain, I can't believe it. I went over to speed his room the other day, and his door was locked, and I didn't get in. I said, I bet he's reading that Bible. There you go. <laughs> and he was. We didn't know it until later. And a few weeks later, who do you think we showed up at the service again? Speedy Jones. Speedy Jones. <laughs> Sat right in the back. I'll never forget him. Arms folded. Look at me. Come on, chaplain. Give it to me. You know, that, that sort of an attitude. And, and believe you me, I poured my heart out with the salvation sermon that night. And the men were praying. <laughs> it, it prayers everyone up to heaven. Those pipeliners who were saved were praying for Speedy. And sure enough, that night when we gave the invitation, first verse, Speedy didn't move. Second verse, Speedy didn't move. Third verse, Speedy stood there. Fourth verse, that's the last one. <laughs> and I said, in my heart, something got to happen. And so I said, okay, just about that time. Speedy stepped out of his from the aisle. Started walking down the aisle towards me. Clomping down there like all Speedy was worth. When he got to the front, he didn't say a word to me. Didn't shake my hand or anything. He turned around. He looked at the men. He said, you guys know me. He said, I can drink more than anybody. He said, I can cuss bigger than anybody. He said, I'm sinner. I need Jesus. Oh, <laughs> Down on his knees he went. I've never heard a man pray about sin so much in my life. <laughs> I've never heard of such sins in my life. He told God everything he had done. I mean, he was talking out loud, too. He was talking about every sin from Saudi Arabia to the North Slope of Alaska. Of course, by this time, all the men had stepped out, came down, put the arms around him. I think it must have been one or two o'clock in the morning. We finally wound up. Speedy was saved. He was free. He was, he was free. He repented. He trusted Jesus. He found it in the Word, in the Gospel tracts. But that's not where it ends. When Speedy got saved, he got saved from the top of his head to the bottom of his toe. The rest of the story I didn't know until later. A few weeks later was Christmas. And I went home and had to do some traveling for a few months. And so I didn't know what had happened. And when I got back to Prudhoe Bay in the springtime, I had hardly gotten there good. And there was a note on my dorm door. Said Chaplain Williams, contact Speedy Jones. Here's where you find him. Well, I hopped in my vehicle and went out to the warm-up shack where it said Speedy was. And he told me the following story. Just after I left, he started bleeding internally. I mean, bad. They took him to the medic. The medic said, Speedy, we got to rush you to Fairbanks. Uh, possibility you could die in your at your age. And so Speedy said, I looked up at the medic and I told him, come on, put me on the airplane, ship me to Fairbanks. I trusted Jesus as my savior in that service, and I'm ready to die. I don't mind at all. <laughs> he was a testimony. They rushed him to Fairbanks to the hospital and come to find out he's a free believer. And 
terrible ulcer. Uh, got with him at his age. All that drinking, carousing, everything he'd done. They told him, they said, Speedy, you might die. We don't know whether you're going to live or not. You're going to have to have an operation immediately. He said, okay, I want to be operated on my hometown. And they said, you might not make it there. He said, I don't mind. He said, you see, the other night, guys, you doctors, I was in the chapel's chaplain service up there at Prudhoe Bay, and I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And he said, if I die, I'm going to heaven. You put me on that airplane and ship me back home. They'll operate on me down there. Wow. So sure enough, they shipped him back. And they operated on him. The doctor told him before the operation, Speedy, you probably won't live through this. And he said, if you, he said, Speedy, if you do make it through this operation, you probably will not be back at Prudhoe Bay. You may not even make it back for the rest of this pipeline. Speedy said, he looked up at the doctor and he said, doctor, you must not know me very well. He said, you see, I trusted Jesus as my Savior today. Let's get on with the operation. They operated on him. In less than two months, Speedy Jones was back at Prudhoe Bay managing his men. They said, the doctors had told him he'd ne maybe never make it back for the project. He was there. Good help. And he said, Chaplain, this is what's happened. Now, he said, I want you to do something for me. He said, you know, around the north slope of Alaska, out there where they're putting that big pipe together, he said, there's warm-up shacks. I mean, you're talking about 30, 40 below zero in the wintertime. A man would work for 30 minutes welding on the pipeline, and he'd go sit in the warm-up shack for 45 minutes wow. just to be able to survive in that sort of a climate. Now, he said, Chaplain, I want you to meet me here at a certain time tomorrow morning. He said, we're going to go to every single one of those warm-up shacks, and I want to tell those men they're expected to be in that worship service next weekend. Well, sure enough, the next morning, I met Speedy out at the warm-up shack. We hopped in his pickup truck. I'll never forget it. I mean, this man had the respect of his men. I mean, when he said jump, they said how high. When he and said Speedy, show up, they showed up. And so Speedy walked into a warm-up shack and said, hey, guys. This is Chaplain Williams. He said, we're having a worship service on Sunday over at uh, the movie hall. He said, you will be there. Oh, yes, Mr. Speedy. Yes, Mr. Speedy, we'll be there. We'll be there. They were. 400, 450 men. Speedy Jones told them they had to be there. Finally, I had so many people coming out to the worship services that I had to train personal workers to, be, to deal with the men who were getting saved. Praise God. That's Mom, what America needs. That's what America needs. Repentance. That's our solution. That's our salvation. That's what made America great. And that's what we need to return to. Right? That's right. That's your only hope. Not not the hard hat. It's dead. That's right. The blood stains are there. The only thing that's going to save America is divine intervention. And the only thing that's going to bring up usually the thing that brings about divine intervention is repentance on the part of of God's people. Can't get the sinner to repent, except when he gets saved. But God's people need to repent so God will move on the sinner to come to know Christ. It's our only hope. Come unto me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and Speedy I will give you heavy. rest. Speedy was heavy laden with sins. Oh, you're talking about sin. Oh, yeah. I never. He must have confessed for an hour to an hour and a half. 
he talked about every sin he could ever think about. I mean, from from the Middle East <laughs> to the North, I was ashamed at times all the sin he talked about. And he was telling it to God. Take my yoke upon you and me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find to your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The burden of sin is heavy, folks. The, the, the burden, you can't handle it. You definitely can't take it out into eternity. And then we come down to my favorite, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's not hope so, think so, possibly could be. That's shall be. And God keeps his word. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's what Speedy did. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, America has two choices. You can take your choice right now. You, you have the answer. I have expressed to you what was told to me. Now, you take it to every person you know. I have intentionally not copywritten. This, these DVDs. I beg you to copy them. If you can't copy them, don't have the equipment, call us. We want to help you get them. Do anything you can. Get a million of them out, two million of them out. It's the only hope. Divine intervention. That's it. That, that's really all there is to it. That's the message. I've told you everything I could tell you. Can I lead them in a prayer? Please. <clears throat> you want to ask Jesus into your heart. If you want to accept him as Lord of your life, King of kings and Lord of lords, if you want your sins washed away so you can have true peace and joy and happiness in your life, like you've never had in all of your life, if you want all that burden of sin lifted, all of those things that you've done wrong, to be forgiven. If you want another chance, another lease in life, pray this prayer with me. It's simple. Just bow your head and say along with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And I accept his blood to wash my sins away. To write my name in the book of life. To keep me holy. And to save me the day of trouble. Now, you should follow on to find a good church. You should begin to read the King James Bible yourself. Because the Bible says that every man must work out his own salvation in fear and trembling. In other words, we are all responsible for what is written in that book. And there's no place in the book that says... All you have to do is go to church and let them teach you. You are responsible to know what is in the King James Bible. You read it for yourself. You follow it. Next thing I recommend you do is you read Mark 16 and 17. That's Mark 16, verses 17. 
and it gives you an outline of what you look for in a church. Why do I need to go to a church, Pastor? I'll tell you why. Because being saved is more than just a prayer. It's a start. All we're doing here is giving you a start into the walk of being a Christian. You go get that Bible. You read that Bible. And then the things in the Bible you follow. You go to a church. Hebrews 10.25 says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need other Christians to help us. To help us to learn, to fellowship with. Yes, sometimes to cry with, pray with. Sometimes we need someone praying for us when our loved ones or ourselves are in the hospital. Sometimes we need to go to the hospital and pray for them. We need other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to help us to learn to walk the Christian walk. And then you read that Bible. You follow that Bible. And we follow it all of our life. Being a Christian is not something that we sometimes do. It's something that we all the time do. Being a Christian is not just a prayer. It's a way of life. You know, they call them Buddhists because they follow the teachings of Buddha. They call them Muslims because they follow the teachings of the Quran. Well, they should be calling us Christians because we follow the teachings of Jesus. You can't follow what you don't know. You learn the teachings of Jesus, and you follow the teachings of Jesus, and I will see you in heaven. Now, Chaplain, I want to ask you one last final question. Tell me about the personality of some of these ruling elite. Are they big, overweight people with big, fat cigars, with smoke-filled rooms, with low light, where they plan out the destruction of the world? What is their personality? What are they like? They do not act the part of a criminal. If you saw them on the street, you would think they were just an ordinary, everyday person. They usually are very reserved and don't open themselves up very often for other people to examine them. Uh, I must admit that the top, the top echelon, now I'm not talking about the working class down here on the pipeline, but the top echelon. Um, now, now, keep in mind. Speedy Jones was a foreman for Houston Constructors. You, you would not put him up in the echelon of the elite. He was just one of the upper working class. Uh, but the top echelon, the elite, I never saw one of them drunk. I can't ever remember that I ever saw one smoke a cigarette. They, they were very moral people. Uh, to look at them, you would think that they were very respectable businessmen. Um, it's quite surprising how that who they were and what they were would fool most people. It was their mindset, what was in their heart. And until you get down to sitting across the dinner table with them and talking to them one-on-one -on -one and drawing them out, would you ever find their control factor of the name of the game is control. So these are not evil-appearing looking, walking, talking people. These are respected business owners. Something maybe what we might find in your typical town as a typical banker or business owner. Yes, okay. that's exactly the, the type that you would think of one of these people being, your banker, your, uh, your wonderful banker who would never do you wrong, but under the bottom would get you to sign a contract that you didn't read the fine print. But they might be part of the ruling elite. Oh, very well could be. 
that make decisions about people's lives. Well, Chaplain, once again, thanks for having me on the program. Thank you for allowing me the use of your studio to be able to make these DVDs. And folks, again, I beg of you, give them out to everybody you can. I plead with you, copy this DVD, give it to every friend you know, try your best to get it to a million people. There is still time. They said you have two years.